first to the party and last to leave. What do you say we party together? This is Sportsnet Today. Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Welcome to Sportsnet Today across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Show Ali with you until 6 p.m. Eastern, after which we'll make way for a Leafs Nation pregame with Brent Gunning and Gord Stelic as tonight the uh, Battle of Ontario goes for a second straight game with the Toronto Maple Leafs taking on the Ottawa Senators. This bout moving from the nation's capital to Scotiabank Arena. Joe Bowen and Jim Ralph will have the call at 7 p.m. Eastern right here on Sportsnet 590, the fan and the rest of the network as well as usual, of course. The Leafs Radio Network. Gord himself will be along in a few minutes. We'll get you set for that game. We'll discuss the latest injuries to guys like Justin Hall and Peter Mrazek. Just two games into the year, but hey, this is something all teams have to deal with, right? Um, we'll also chat Alex Bishop, who is getting called up today for a PTO with the Leafs, in case you haven't heard, right? He'll be the backup to Campbell with Mrazek on the mend with that groin injury. I just wanted to say on uh, on Alex Bishop real quick, I think we can agree every one of us that the Leafs engaging in complicated cat maneuvers and not being able to call up a goaltender from the Marlies or something like that. That's not great, right? It'll probably the way be the way she goes essentially as long as most of the cap space is taken up by the big contracts, but specifically when it comes to Alex Bishop, he plays for the varsity blues at UFT, my alma mater. He uh, bounced around the QMJHL the OJHL, the MJAHL, and now the Markham native gets to suit up for the Leafs, even like even if he doesn't play a single second. And I think also we can also agree that if he does play even one second of ice time tonight, something has gone horribly wrong, and there are larger issues we're going to be talking about tomorrow and on Leafs Nation post game tonight. But uh, even if he does not play one second of hockey tonight, I have to say that is really cool. So congratulations, Alex. I, I hope you enjoy it. Um, I, I'm assuming he's a Leafs fan <laughs> considering he's from Markham. You never actually know, but I do think it is pretty cool that a guy who played for the Varsity Blues this year is going to suit up for the Toronto Maple Leafs. So again, congratulations to Alex. Um, as an aside, you, the fan, having to navigate the the Byzantine structures, let's say, of cap space and how teams use it and manipulate it and essentially whatever they want, that has got to be hard, right? Like, I barely understand the nuances of a lot of cap moves beyond the long-term injured reserve stuff. And I think the, the genuine truth is that most people, fans, the media, everyone who enjoys NHL hockey has to essentially be an accountant to enjoy and understand everything going on with whatever your team is, right? The Leafs, the Sens, the Habs, whatever. So uh, it's just interesting to always have to talk about the cap nuances. But anyways, Gord Stalick will be along shortly. We'll discuss all that with him. And later this hour, we'll also be joined by Baseball America's Kyle Glazer. Uh, we'll chat with Kyle about the Astros beating the Red Sox 5-4 to four, uh, in a four-hour, 17-minute ball game. There was a point in that game where I looked down at my phone to check the time and it was, uh, I do not wear a watch, so I had to check my phone. And it was nearing the four-hour mark, and I could not believe this game was still in the bottom of the seventh inning. That game felt like it was an extras, and it was a regular nine-inning ball game. There wasn't even a bottom of the ninth in that game because Houston won at home. 
And it was still over four hours long. Heavens knows I love playoff baseball, but my goodness, right? The silver lining for me, at least, and I'm sure a lot of people who are Jays fans listening to this, the silver lining is at least the Red Sox lost. Because having to watch four hours, four plus hours of a regular nine inning ball game where the Red Sox win in the end is frankly inhumane and should be considered cruel and unusual punishment. I will say real quick before we get to Gord Stellick, the Carlos Correa pimp job on the late game home run was awesome. I know, I know the complaints that come with Correa and the Astros at large and even those that extend to George Springer, but as it pertained to Correa last night, he blasted that home run and instead of a bat flip, he essentially discarded his bat as if he had no more use for it. It was cool to see a Mount Rushmore pimp job for me on a home run. I want more of that, especially uh, if I have to watch a four-hour ball game. But we'll be joined by Kyle Glazer later this hour. And right now, we are joined by Gord Stellick, Leafs Nation pre- and post-game co-host. Gord, how are you doing today? I'm good, show. How are you? I am doing very well. Thank you for joining me on a, a Saturday afternoon. I know you're going to be up late tonight with the Leafs game, so I won't keep you too long this afternoon. But uh, I do want to. I was talking off the top here about this Alex Bishop signing. I'm sure you saw it. He's the, the U of T goaltender signed to a PTO with the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs. And um, certainly, I, I said this on the air already, but I mean, if, if Alex Bishop plays even a second tonight, it means we have larger problems here that we're going to be talking about, probably about Jack Campbell. But at the same time, I do think it is really cool that a kid from U of T who has bounced around a whole bunch of minor leagues is getting to suit up. A Markham native at that is getting to suit up for the Leafs. <laughs> uh, by the way, I agree about the length of the ball games for starters. <laughs> and, um, and, and yeah, and you know what, to look from the, uh, uh, the kid or the young man's perspective, you're absolutely right. Show. I mean, it's, uh, it's, and he, he's, it, I saw a little questionnaire. He did his favorite team, the Toronto Maple Leafs. And uh, it's not like he's a guy trying out a training camp and, aspiring you know this year to make it it just came out of the blue and man i think it's a neat story but if he has to go in the game i mean uh uh you know and he, and he might play well but it's just uh, i know talking to an executive before the start of the season started i just mean in the nhl right who just mentioned i mean so many teams are up tight against the cap he just said you're going to see you know teams playing with uh, under one player quite often or doing a lot of interesting things i just didn't think it was the toronto maple Leafs that would be the first to kind of put that process he's talking about emotion you're talking game two and you're going with an unqualified nhl goaltender as a backup and that's not demeaning alex bishop at all that's all i'm just saying about wow i mean there's there's hard press against the cap and there's uh uh and there's you know an element of, of desperation and so so I, I it's a neat story i mean if you got to come in and play and played well that would be great but it's uh you know cap management wise this isn't what you want to see happen yeah, I feel, I feel like as you go on later in the season, I, I feel like you may have expected to see this, but it may not expect is the wrong word, but you may may potentially have seen stuff like this. But now you, you know, like you said, game three of the regular season tonight, only two games in the books already. It's it's not what you want to see going going forward. But, I, you know, if I, I can't imagine Alex Bishop is going to be playing, like I can't even imagine the PTO extends beyond this one game, right? So after this weekend even, who do you think ends up being called up from the Marlies? Like, is it a call up, do you think? Or I, I guess I I should say, or do they have to explore other options if the Peter Mrazek injury is worse than we think? Well, same time next year, same time last year, it's Michael Hutchinson. And and this is part of the process goes that, you know, the one-day PTO, um, again, the, the, the rules get complicated, but this is the one game that basically you have to play in a, uh, whether you want to call it dire or stress situation, like you're playing under the roster or you're calling up a goaltender like this. So Monday, expect Michael Hutchinson to be recalled and be the backup against the New York Rangers, unless there's something I don't know about, which could be the case. 
And um, the other concern is, like, Peter Morazic. Now, if they're not going to put him on long-term injury list, uh, which is good news, but, boy, nagging, groin injuries for goaltenders uh, and a guy that's been injured a couple times the last few years, that's disconcerting news. Chatting with Gord Stelic here, Leafs Nation pre- and post-game co-host. Yeah, I, I like you said, the, the Mrazic signing was something I was actually decently excited about because we have seen him flash and be you know play pretty well over the last couple of seasons. But the injuries have been things that have mounted for him, right? And I, you always hesitate to label in players injury-prone because you know injuries are tough and they can happen virtually at every time, especially in a sport like hockey. But for a goaltender, a groin injury is something that he could be okay, it feels like Gord, in a couple of weeks. Or it could be something that that nags at him for months, and that's not what you want to see if you're the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah, you know, and you know, it's kind of something last year we saw with Freddie Anderson, just about getting injured and never really getting 100% healthy by the end of the year. And uh, I, I'm with you. I, I like the Peter Rasek signing, so I, I'm I'm not going to. Uh, I like the Peter Rasek signing, but just um, you and you know, I'll use. I, I don't. I, I guess I go back way too long when I talk about a Wendell Clark, but a Wendell Clark year three and year four had back issues you wondered if he'd ever ever able to be overcome them and then he went on and had that really great great nhl career and others you know uh, uh mike commissaric came here had a and, and brian burke would talk about it. love mike commissaric's attitude came here as an unrestricted free agent but had shoulder issues that he, he couldn't he couldn't overcome so never never found his rhythm on the maple leaf decor and yeah i mean we'll we'll find out down the road you know years gone by you look back at it historically but um, you, you just hope he's back sooner rather than later, and you hope for both both goaltenders it's a relatively relatively healthy year for them. You know, another guy who has uh, unfortunately been injured again really early on this season has been Justin Hall, and uh, Hall has been paired with Muzzin in the second uh, D-line pairings, and you got Riley and Brody on the top pairing. Um, with Hall out, how does that affect the pairings in your mind, George? Uh, Gord? Well, you know, that, that's that's a good, interesting point because it's first, you're right, about you, you had Timothy Lilligren in, so it's not just the, the player, but there's also the, the pairings. And, and that's, you know, quite often uh, when I say a sensitive touch, you know, guys, you know, some, some teams can roll different Ds, they mix and match them, and others, you know, someone likes to play with a particular particular partner and they just don't play nearly as well that way. So, uh, you know, great, good defensemen, solid defensemen, NHL, you should be able to play with anybody. I mean, that's the way it should go, but there, 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 there is sensitivity there. And uh, it's, um, so, so you're right. It's twofold. Uh, hey, Timothy Lilligren, like Rasmus Sandin is a first round pick. So you're hoping if it's first round picks, they're good enough to at least, you know, play and be journeyman in the national hockey league. The pairing thing, you know, it would take a little while to see if that is something that uh, is going well, bearing fruit, or is problematic, that there's something intangible there. You know, it's always curious when it comes to defensemen, Gord, right? Because I feel like more, certainly when it comes to hockey in general and prospects who get drafted into the league, they, unless you're uh, uh, one of the top-end prospects like a Connor McDavid, typically you take a couple of years, you, you know, get some seasoning, let's say, down in the uh, various minor leagues. But when it comes to defensemen specifically, I feel like it's a even more hit or miss sometimes, right? Like, I mean, look at look at someone like Rasmus Dahlin, right? He hasn't necessarily put it all together. He was drafted incredibly highly just a couple of seasons ago. Victor Hedman, who I think a lot of people look at as one of the better, if not the best defensemen in the entire NHL. I think he was the number one draft pick there. He got drafted. And uh, it took him a couple of years, even, maybe even more so, to break into the league. And now, you know, winning Stanley Cups left, right, and center with the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning. I just, I, I, why, why do you think it is that defensemen specifically specifically tend to take a little more time to uh, develop at the NHL level. 
a tougher position to learn, I think. Just tougher. You know, there's way more variables they have to deal with. Uh, with the rule changes as well. I mean, any rule change is made to punish the defense and try to get more scoring in, whether it's this year about the crackdown and cross-checking. So, you know, the show, that's why you, you seem to tend to find that. It, it, it is, uh, it's interesting, a guy like Kale McCarr, for example, how well he's burst on the scene, but then how much is that because he's with a really strong team in Colorado? Otherwise, you're right, and Hedman was the second overall pick. Uh, I mean, so many guys are first or second round picks. And Drew Doughty was a second overall pick, and the list goes on and on. High picks, but it, it just there's a lot more to learn when you've got Connor McDavid coming at you all the time, or Austin Matthews coming at you, and uh, about figuring out how to play the game at the NHL level. And you're right, it tends more often than not. Uh, you don't have like Marner, Matthews, Nylander bursting on the scene like they did with so much uh, so much success. You don't see that with defensemen as much. Yeah, defensemen are the. It's such an interesting topic for me, right? I mean, the Buffalo game is going on right now on Sports in Ontario. Buffalo playing uh, playing the Arizona Coyotes, and uh, Dalene is in that game. Certainly, you mentioned Kale McCarr, Quinn Hughes in Vancouver, Miro Heiskanen in Dallas, right? Like all guys, all super young players who I'm sure will have go on to have great careers. But it's really fascinating to me to always to always take a look at how their careers develop because, like you said, yeah, Victor Hedman. Thank you for correcting me. The second overall pick that year, and uh, look what he's become. So I'm not I'm not necessarily saying that Timothy. Lilligren or or uh, Quinn Hughes or any of these guys will necessarily go on to be uh, Victor Hedman style, right? But you certainly hope if you're a, a fan of any of those teams. Um, you know, I do want to ask you, Gord, here about uh, Jason Spezza. And I think on on a Thursday night, I guess it was, in the second game of the back-to-back against the Sens, the team got off to a, a pretty bad start, uh, to say the least, right? 3 nothing right away for the Sens and some bad bounces that went in against Mrazic. He played a very good second period before he went out with the injury. But Spezza ended up being the QB on the number one power play unit and i'm just curious what you think of that because he definitely seemed to provide a much needed spark on special teams against the sends that game when they were down three nothing oh no question it's funny the 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 best news or worst news i don't know how to look at it is like if jason spezza has a great game then really there's others that you think who normally play whatever number of minutes would be more minutes that should be uh should be kingpins in the game but when Jason Spetz is asked to do do something, more often than not, he's done it. And, I, and you know, so many people talk about you know just fighting Boone Jenner at the end of that game five in that right. horrible series against Columbus. Just the fact that he wasn't going to uh, you know he wasn't going to go down without a fight. And in this case, uh, good on Sheldon Keefe. I, I like that he put the top guns together a couple of times. Tavares, Marner, uh, and, and and Nylander kind of put them in a line. And one time in particular, they created a lot of havoc. And then the other thing was, you know, trying giving Jason Spets a bit more of a prominent role, and and uh, and he adapted and he adapted to it and succeeded in it. So um, the guy came here for the league minimum. You know how much he wants to be here. He got disrespected unnecessarily so by Mike Babcock, and uh, you know the, these kind of guys. And if they, if they can be a difference maker in a win or two along the season, that's huge. If you get a few, if you get a few players that are all contributing in that manner. Chatting with Gord Stelic here, Leafs Nation pre and post game host Brent and Gun- Brent Gunning and Gord will be on the air for Leafs Nation pre game following this program at 6 p.m. Eastern. Um, you know, Gord is William Nylander. You mentioned him and him being put together with the other top guys. Certainly, I think we can all agree now that we're a couple years out. the The deal looks great, especially if the cap hit is going to the cap uh, number. I should say overall is going to keep on rising over the next couple of seasons. But is he essentially play wise picking up where he left off in the playoffs last year? Two games into it, he seems like he is show. Uh, again, it's a small sampling, but yeah, I mean, I mean, this guy had a great playoff. This guy had a, has had 
I say two great regular seasons. I think more he was one when Sheldon Keith came on board uh, that, like a lot of players, they had a better second half the year before. You know, you know the, the streaky William Nylander, the one that fans get on quickly because he has that uh, seemingly 10-game slump and then all of a sudden 10 games when he's turning it on. But, yeah, it's, it's been more of an even plane now and, and more consistent. Uh, uh, he's been their best player, you know, flat up been their best player the first two games. Do you think, I think he played, I think it was a little over 22 minutes he played on Thursday night. Do you think if that, if he keeps us up, that his numbers will maybe not continue to rise at a, at a huge rate, but I mean, and, and maybe that'll be capped whenever Austin Matthews does come back and you're, we're hoping at this point it's next week, but considering the 22 minutes thereabouts number for, for Nylander on, uh, on Thursday against the Sens, do you think we can expect to see more of that, especially if he keeps this up? Well, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and part of why he got so many minutes is they were down and they were, you know, they're down three, nothing. They were coming back, making some headway. So uh, the big guys uh, got more ice time. I mean, in, in a ideal game for the Maple Leafs, you'd have it more spread out. You'd use your third and fourth line more, but if you need scoring, uh, you play the big guns and Nylander's the guy who's been delivering. So the more minutes uh, he plays, sure. Commensurately, that'll, that'll help his scoring for sure. Chatting with Gord Selleck here. You know, a guy who um, we've all been talking about. I guess I guess a number of guys we've been talking about this going into this season because we're always going to talk about the Tavares's and the, the Matthews, the Marners, the Nylanders of the world because everyone's very familiar with them at this point um, in their tenure with the Maple Leafs. But, you know, guys like Nick Ritchie and Michael Bunting and, and David Kampf I think are guys who we're all going to be talking, Andre Kasha as well because they're the new guys. But Kampf is especially, I mean, he... He is, I think, and he was billed as, I guess, a quote-unquote defensive center, Gord, right? Like coming into this, and he, he, I think yeah. he's been playing on the third line, right? Especially with Matthews out. I, I expect that to change when Matthews does come back and Kerfoot will go back down, Tavares will go back down, everything changes there. But what, what has been your, I guess, your read of Camp, considering he has been, I guess, as advertised when it comes to being, again, quote-unquote defensive center? Well, again exhibition season the Leafs only lost one exhibition game so by and large you know the new guys look look good um only two games in the regular season which is where it's really going to count so I need I need more games to see uh but uh it's it's interesting show that you know unlike say Joe Thornton last year that they've kind of gone with the 25 26 year olds uh, like a different different kind of age thing not the not the 30 somethings and and hoping they can do what they did with another NHL team in the, in, in their best, in their best year. And they all bring, they all bring different elements to the mix. Now I thought Kasha had some poor puck management on the third goal. There's only, you know, five, six seconds left in the first period and uh, you know, shouldn't have been panicking, trying to get that puck out. And that ended up in the, in the senators getting that third goal, which is a game winning goal with less than one second left. You asked me about camps and yeah, I, I see that as far as the, defensive play goes and and all these guys are different spices you think of freddie goche that was kind of had that role but not good enough to sustain it in the nhl but had that role under mike babcock and and uh that is what we're hoping camp will have with more success Gord, before I let you go, uh, one of the better developments, at least, and again, I know two games is a small sample size like we've been talking about, but better, one of the better developments in game two uh, was seeing Rasmus Sandin's passing, right? Like, it's always been a part of his game 
that has been attractive, you know, on the on the world stage and, and with it with his native his native Sweden team. But he really is a clever passer, and I just at least for me, it's exciting to see because you know he's still going to be a, a lower pairing defenseman for now. But I imagine in the in the relatively near future, we might see more minutes from uh, Rasmus Sandin. So it is kind of cool to get a little bit of a preview of what we might be getting used to on the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah, we kind of screwed him pretty closely, don't we, Show? And, and uh, uh, I, I agree with you that, you know, the things he can do in that more and more looking like an NHL defenseman. And again, another first-round pick, and you're kind of saying, okay, this is the time. This, these are the guys that got to start popping on the blue line and showing that they're, you know, they're, they're NHL-worthy based on ability. And, and uh, you know, the Leafs have uh, not had a great history. Nick Kipros and I have talked about it, just being able to draft and develop defensemen the same way about developing forwards. So, uh, I've liked I've liked what I've seen about Rasmus Sandin. I'm a big booster of his, and um, and and hopefully you know being in the core six and maybe getting a few more minutes uh, overall compared to he did last year is what what is in the works. Gord, always appreciate you jumping on with me, especially on a Saturday afternoon. Good luck getting ready for Leafs Nation pregame, and let's hope in the postgame that we're not talking about uh, Alex Bishop playing uh, too many minutes tonight. Well, yeah, well, if he did, maybe it'd be that great story. Let's get a David Ayer story going our way, then, if that's yes. going to be the case. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, going to be fun back at, the, uh, back at the venue down there today, first time in 500 days. So looking forward to that. There he goes. Gord Stelic, co-host of Leafs Nation pre- and post-game. Will be pretty cool for uh, Gord and Sam and Brent to be down at Scotia Bank Arena. But again, that's Gord Stelic. You'll hear Leafs Nation pregame on uh, right here on Sportsnet 590 The Fan at 6 p.m. Eastern. And uh, Brent and Gord will get you set an hour before the game. And then, as, as I mentioned, Gord, uh, Joe, Joe Bowen and Jim Ralph will have the call uh, on Sportsnet 590 The Fan and the Leafs Radio Network. Um, coming up in a couple of minutes, we'll be joined by Kyle Glazer, national MLB writer for Baseball America. And uh, we'll get into the MLB playoffs. Uh, game two between Boston and Houston down at Minute Maid Park will go, I believe, in about an hour's time, almost exactly in an hour at 420 p.m. Eastern approximately will be first pitch. I believe it'll be Nathan Uvalde against uh, Luis Garcia. And of course, Luis Garcia, someone who is uh, in the running, I would say, for AL Rookie of the Year. We'll be chatting with uh, Kyle about that. But, um, you know, we're going to hit the quick a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to play a clip for, for you guys from Kike Hernandez, his first home run of the season, or pardon me, of the game last night against the Astros in the ALCS. And uh, it was interesting that it came at a strange time in the game because of how Fox does their uh, in-game interviews. And I got to say, it made me laugh out loud. And I think if you haven't, if you didn't see it last night, we'll play it for you. And I think you'll find it pretty interesting as well. So that'll that's straight ahead. A conversation with Kyle Glazer, national baseball writer from Baseball America is ahead as well. Sportsnet Today with Show Ali, that's me, continues next across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Sportsnet 590, The Fan. You know, whenever I hear this song, I think of NBA Street, Volume 2. I, I don't know. If, I actually am not entirely sure if this uh, this song, uh, you know, how, wherever else it was played, but that that is what I think of. The soundtrack from NBA Street Volume 2 for the GameCube, specifically. I never played it in any of the assistants, but uh, there you go. So welcome you back to Sportsnet today across the Sportsnet radio network. Show Alley with you until 6 p.m. 
at which point we will make way for Leafs Nation pregame with Brent Gunning and Gord Stellick. They will be down at Scotiabank Arena for uh, game three of this very young 82-game season between the Leafs and the Ottawa Senators. They played on Thursday in the nation's capital, and now we'll play here in downtown Toronto. Joe Bowen and Jim Ralph will have the call, as always, across the Leafs Radio Network starting at 7 p.m. But we'll talk with Kyle Glazer here on Sportsnet today. He is a national baseball writer for Baseball America. And we'll chat with Kyle in a couple of minutes. But um, I mentioned this before the break. So game two of the uh, ALCS is going to happen later today. That'll be in a little under an hour at 4.20 p.m. Eastern. Nathan Ivaldi against Luis Garcia in the mound matchup. But last night, the Astros took a 5-4 win over the Red Sox. Kike Hernandez hitting two home runs. The guy has, and I'm not kidding, 13 hits in his last four postseason games. Like this year, in the last four games, he has 13 hits, which is just absolutely ridiculous. But his, uh, I believe it was his second hit of the ball game came in the top of the third inning yesterday. Now, Fox Sports, and the, we were carrying, Sportsnet was carrying the Fox Sports feed on TV, and I'm sure that'll be this, the same case today uh, at a 420. But uh, Fox Sports, and a lot, of, a lot of teams do this, a lot of uh, broadcasts do this. They uh, will, will have the broadcasters in the booth interview the, the manager on field with like a headset for like, I don't know, about a minute or so, right? So Dusty Baker is the manager of the Houston Astros. And he was being interviewed by Joe Buck when Kike Hernandez came up to the plate in the top of the third inning. And this is how it went. A little bit, but he's making some pitches when he has to. And, uh, you know, like I said, oh, Lord. Here's one into left center. This ball is up and out. <laughs> way out. Yeah, way out. And this game is tied 1-1. Well, they hung a breaker ball. And... Uh, you know, usually he doesn't hang him. You know, he, he was having trouble finding finding his release point because he was bouncing some of them, and then he hung that one. So, all right, yeah, that's uh, that's Dusty Baker chatting with Joe Buck uh, in in the top of the third inning. Uh, so as 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 after, pardon me, Kike Hernandez hit that solo shot off of, I believe it was Framber Valdez. And I just got to say, the uh, the weary oh lord from Dusty Baker, I got to say, is probably one of the main reasons managers do not like doing those kind of interviews in the middle of a ball game, much less a playoff game too, right? Game one of the ALCS, that I, I got to say, that, uh, that ex- exasperated oh lord from Dusty Baker, Probably is the loudest I have laughed during a home run in a long time, just because it comes out of nowhere. Even even Baker giving a, a little bit of a, a chuckle as well. Um, let's bring in Kyle Glazer, national baseball writer for Baseball America, into this conversation. Uh, Kyle, I just played for the listeners the uh, the uh, Dusty Baker Oh Lord clip for when Kike Hernandez hit a solo home run in the top of the third inning yesterday. I got to say that that has got to be at least in part why managers don't love doing media interviews in the middle of a ball game, much less the uh, game one of the ALCS. I mean, I think most of the time it's a distraction. They're trying to manage the game. They're trying to make sure everything is going the way they want it to. And they're trying to talk a lot of times. It just doesn't really add a whole lot to the broadcast. This was kind of entertaining. There's no question. I actually thought this was the argument for having these in-game manager interviews, getting real-time reactions. But, again, generally speaking, they don't add a whole lot. This just was a little extra fun with Dusty's reaction. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I got to say, it was it was pretty fun. Now, before we get into anything specific, Kyle, off the top of the show, 
Um, I was talking about Carlos Correa's home run. I believe it was in the bottom of the seventh inning, I want to say it was. But either way, he he kind of, like when he hit the home run, he pimped it a little bit. He kind of discarded the bat and and he took, started to take off his his arm arm guards and so on and, and, and you know, basically jogged around the bases. Where do you fall on, on players kind of pimping home runs, right? I know it can be kind of a divisive issue, right? Some fans love it. Some fans think it's too much. I personally really enjoyed it. I'm just curious as to where you fall on something like that. I think it's a case-by-case basis. You have to take into account the context. For example, Jose Bautista throwing his bat in the uh, playoff series against the Rangers. That was a huge moment. That was great. That was fine. Some of the other things we see a few years ago, Derek Dietrich in a random middle-of-the-season game (laughs) against the Pirates doing it. It's like, really? Come on. So, again, I think this context matters. I think the situation matters. A big home run and a big playoff game, I don't mind it. But, again, if you're going to do that, you have to be cool with the other team doing it as well. So there's a little bit of a tit for tat that comes with it. Yeah, you know that's fair. That, I think that is fair. I think you can't really, you don't only really have a leg to stand on if you com, if you do it or par, people on your team do it and then you complain about it, right? So that that I do agree with. As we're chatting with uh, Kyle Glazer, national MLB writer for Baseball America. Now, Kyle, you're out on the West Coast, and I know we've talked before with you joining us, you know, and shows past. Uh, you joined us before, at or after uh, Dodgers games. Now we will talk about those Dodgers in a few minutes, but I only bring up the location because. You must have seen a lot of Kike Hernandez during his time with the Dodgers. Now, I think he played with them from 2015 through to the end of the World Series last year. Um, for those of us on the East Coast who are only really seeing him a lot now that he's with the Red Sox, and specifically in Toronto, uh, Toronto-Boston games are, are a big staple here, right? Are you surprised at all by his uh, postseason heroics? I mean, the guy has 13 hits in his last four games, including two home runs last night. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you ever expect a guy to hit 500, but he's always been a really, really, really good performer in big moments. You know, when the Dodgers acquired him, he was kind of a lefty killer, only really starved against lefties. But we've seen in the postseason, he continues to come up time and time again. I believe he shared the NLCS MVP award a few years ago in helping the Dodgers get to the World Series. I I think it was 2017. I've had my years right. So, look, he's always been a a good player to have, a nice complimentary piece. The Red Sox have played him every day, and he's kind of earned that role and earned that right. And, yeah, I mean, this is a guy who knows October, isn't nervous, isn't, you know, overwhelmed by the situation. He knows how to get the job done, and talent plus composure, good things normally happen. What you know on the Red Sox at large, then you know what do you make of them? Because I've said this a lot, but trying to divine just what the hell they're going to do on any given night, and certainly that's something common in playoff baseball, you know, generally speaking. But with the Red Sox, uh, let's just say a lot of people in this city and on this radio station in particular have thrown out thrown around the word uh, frauds when it comes to Boston, and yet here they are in in the ALCS. It was a pretty good ball game last night, albeit a long one. And they gave uh, the Houston Astros all they could handle. And, you know, it was a you know, close, super close game. I just, this is what you can expect going forward. And I just, I guess I'm just done trying to uh, guess just what's going to happen to the Red Sox on a, uh, on a game-to-game basis. Yeah, I mean, the way you explain them is they're an explosive offense that scores enough runs to make up for a pitching staff that absolutely has some weaknesses. Now, they have gotten some big performances and big moments. You think about Nick Pavetta in the ALDS. You think about Tanner Houck in the ALDS. Both came out of the bullpen and gave the Red Sox some really good long relief outings. You know, timely pitching combined with an offense that's just relentless, that can take you a little ways. Now, 
the Astros are similar and their offense is even better and their pitching staff is even better. So I think it would absolutely be a surprise to see the Red Sox beat the Astros. The Rays, you could understand it because they were throwing a lot of rookie pitchers against a really explosive Red Sox offense. It wasn't a great matchup for Tampa Bay. I would be surprised to see the Red Sox beat the Astros, but wouldn't be the first time they've surprised us this year. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think every time anyone has said the Red Sox are done, they go on an extending losing streak, they just immediately turn around and prove everyone wrong, essentially, right? It's been a, a real roller coaster um, to watch the Red Sox this season. And, and later today, um, in just, I believe, under an hour, the game goes at 4.20 p.m. Eastern, 1.20 p.m. Pacific. We're getting a prime pitching matchup in Game 2 of the ALCS tonight. It'll be Nathan Yavaldi and uh, Luis Garcia. And it's, it's really interesting. I think this is a, a fascinating matchup because... Yavaldi is probably one of the better postseason pitchers, at least in the last couple of years. And then you have Garcia, who could win. I mean, I know it'll probably go to a position player, but he's at least in the conversation for an AL a Rookie of the Year award. And I just, what are your thoughts on Garcia and his game? Because I think he is a lot of fun to watch, and I just have a feeling we'll be talking about him as it pertains to the Astros pitching staff for a long time to come, Kyle. Yeah, his delivery is very... Uh kinetic and it's kind of fun to watch there's no question yeah i mean he's a very good pitcher a really good young arm he's someone that we saw actually start in the postseason last year on the alcs he went out and gave a two-winning start with the astros facing elimination against the Rays, and just given his youth and inexperience the fact he went out and pitched well in a big spot like that even though it was just two innings was certainly a testament to him yeah i mean he's certainly a talented pitcher and you're right someone that you can see pitching in the astros rotation for years to come at the same time, Nathan Uvalde was one of the best pitchers in the American League this year. Now his numbers don't show because his defense behind him was not great. But we saw what he's capable of in the division series. We've seen what he's capable of before in the postseason. Um, or in the wildcard game against the Yankees, excuse me. This is a really good pitcher. And this is the game, if you're the Red Sox, where you go in and saying, hey, we should win this one. Almost every other game the Red Sox are going to go in probably expected to lose this is the one they should win and they really need to win if they go back to boston tied 1-1 they have a shot if they go back to boston down 2-0 with Yavaldi down for a couple days it's going to be tough so this is the one they should win and when it comes to the other i guess the other guys in the uh, astros starting rotation we talked a little bit about um the, the performances we've seen from tanner hauck and and garrett richards and and nick pavetta you mentioned him as well but on the astros side of things so with valdez pitched last night garcia is going to pitch tonight lance mccullers jr i think is someone who i have really enjoyed watching this year that guy i mean I've, I've seen a lot of different terms to use to describe him like bulldog and nasty and stuff like that he he is one guy whenever he's on the mound he may sometimes sometimes struggle with some control and so on but by and large he has been one of the uh, backbones of this uh, starting rotation for the houston astros basically all all season yeah if you go back and look since he returned from tommy john surgery last year he's actually been really 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 good pretty consistently and you're right the control is not always the sharpest there's definitely some walks but it's got nasty stuff he gets the job done and losing him this series he's out is really the opening the red sox needed to maybe say you know what we have a better chance than people are giving us credit for the Astros not having this McCullers, it's a pretty big blow. Now, again, their offense is just so, 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 so good. They might be able to withstand it, especially against the Red Sox pitching staff with a lot of questions. I think we're going to see a lot of games this series like we saw yesterday where both teams put up some runs, but at the end of the day, the Astros might come up with some big hits late and outlast the Red Sox. Uh, if Lance McCullers was around, it might be different. The Astros might have a little bit of an easier time, but losing him definitely ups the Red Sox chances of winning this.
Chatting with uh, Kyle Glazer here, national MLB writer for Baseball America. And, of course, the other game that's going on tonight, Dodgers-Braves. Um, that'll, I believe it is Corey Niebel uh, pitching for the Dodgers and Max Fried going for the Braves. And when it comes to Atlanta, I, I almost feel like, and certainly we're going to talk a lot about the Dodgers over the course of the next coming coming weeks because of uh, what they did with the Giants and um, you know the the way that game ended as well didn't exactly uh, please Giants game five of the uh, the NLDS with the uh, the uh, missed perhaps missed a uh, called strike right and I just I find when it comes to the Braves on the other side of things Kyle maybe we're not talking about them enough it, I I just feel like uh, they're being I don't know if disrespected is the right word but maybe largely ignored when you have teams like Boston and Los Angeles still in the playoffs. Well, I think the biggest thing is you look at their overall regular season record, see an 88-win team and go, eh, they're not that good. But if you look at what this team has done since August 2nd, they have the third-best record in Major League Baseball behind only the Giants and the Dodgers, the two best teams in baseball. They really retooled their team at the trade deadline. And as currently constructed, after all those moves were made, they've been the third-winningest team in Major League Baseball. This is a team that should not be discounted. They're playing really, really well. They have been for two and a half months now. And on top of that, one of the biggest keys here is the way the Dodgers series played out their pitching staff's a little bit worn out. They're going to have to throw some guys on short rest. We see them going with an opener today, whereas the Braves can line up. Max Fried, Ian Anderson, Charlie Morton, fully rested, no issues. The Braves have a pretty strong starting pitching advantage right now, just the way everything played out in the NLDS for the Dodgers. That could take them a long way. I don't think people should discount the Braves. This team's been playing too well for the last two and a half months to say they don't have a shot. You know, I want to ask you, you mentioned the um, Nebel going for the Dodgers, and he's kind of like the, the opener for the second consecutive postseason game. And I believe I was reading that it's a righty Tony Gonsolin who's uh, expected to go multiple innings. But I've also been seeing some people speculate that maybe the Dodgers could actually use multiple openers, essentially, or multiple relievers, I guess is a better way to say it, um, before they bring in Gonsolin. Like, what do, you, what do you make of that? Like, is that just, like you said, a way to alleviate some of the stress on a, on a, pitching, a starting pitching rotation that has been used a lot, especially? especially against the Giants, or are they? Is, are, is this a case of the Dodgers getting, you know, quote-unquote, too cute? No, so Game 5 was a case of the Dodgers getting, quote-unquote, too cute. This is a case of they just don't have any fully rested arms. You know, Walker Bueller pitched Game 4 on short rest. He needs a break. They burned both Julio Urias and Max Scherzer on Thursday. There's no way those guys are going to be ready to give any sort of extended innings here on Saturday, especially even though Scherzer only threw one inning. You want him to be able to start for you later in the series. So, And with Clayton Kershaw's injury, they don't really have that fourth starter they can rely on. They really only have three healthy starters, and this Tony Gonsolin is not good enough this year where you give him the ball and say, go start a game for us. They have to kind of do this to piece together this game just because of the way the NLDS played out. Okay, yeah, that's that's totally fair because I I just I, I know a lot of people didn't love the Nebel decision ahead of Urias in uh, in Game Five of the NLDS. I, did, I I admit I didn't mind it. I, I just I I'm just curious just because we brought it up. But where where did you fall on it? You didn't did you did you really care about that at all, Kyle, or did you did you uh, not like it? I didn't love it because you're asking guys to do something that they haven't done all year. This is where you give Corey Knebel and Bruce Dark Gratterall credit going into a hostile environment in a game you have to win and performing when they were put into a situation that they haven't been asked to do all year, that takes a lot. And Julio Urias, we saw him come out of the bullpen last year and be effective, but it's still been a year since he'd done it. He came out, did his job, made only one mistake to Darren Ruff. So it worked out, um, and that's a credit to the players. 
But it also kind of creates this issue of, okay, well, now you're here in the NLCS, you're a little short on arms, whereas maybe if Yuri starts, he gives you a full six inning, then you can just go try and Gratterall Jansen, boom, 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 we're done, and Scherzer's healthy and ready to go for game one, arrested and ready to go for game one of the NLCS, I should say. So there are some ramifications and repercussions from using an opener, and we're going to start to see them here in the NLCS. You know, we've talked a lot about uh, starting pitching uh, d- during our chat here today, Kyle. And, and, you know, you look at the Braves. I'm just pulling up the, the name of the Braves rotation after today. So Max Fried going today, like we know. Ian Anderson has been announced, I think, for Game 2. And Game 3 has not been announced yet. But I would imagine it's going to be Charlie Morton, unless something changes. I mean, uh, you know, all things considered, especially in the in the playoffs where you're starting rotation, and we just talked about it with, with Scherzer and, and Bueller and so on with the, when it comes to the Dodgers. But considering your starting rotation does typically get short a little bit when it comes to the postseason having a, a starting three of freed anderson and morton is pretty good all things when it comes all things considered when it comes to the braves especially you know they have lost guys like ronald acuna jr and like you said they've been on a crazy winning streak i mean the, if you're the braves again maybe you, you might be the underdogs to a very very good dodgers lineup especially in the batting order but i mean you've got to feel good about having anderson freed and morton in your first three games against a powerhouse dodgers team Absolutely. This is where the Braves have the advantage. If you line up the starting pitching matchups, they're going to have the edge. And a lot of these games, just because, again, Scherzer and Bueller, we have to see how much rest they have when they start in games two and three. But on the whole, the Braves have a very, very clear pitch starting pitching edge here in game one. And depending on if the Dodgers need to use some of their other starters on a short rest, the Braves having any of their guys at full rest, that's an advantage for them. The Braves have the starting pitching advantage in this series, no question, given how the NLDS played out. Uh, before I let you go, Kyle, I just want to ask, uh, Corey Seager, do you think he's uh, destined to be a free agent with Trey Turner and other new additions added to the Dodgers this year, or do you think he'll uh, stay in? Uh, you think it's a possibility, I guess I should say, that he'll stay in L.A.? Yeah, I mean, there's always a possibility. Uh, the biggest thing is the Dodgers' payroll situation, and they still owe Trevor Bauer a lot of money. Um, there's still some pretty hefty contractual commitments they have and Corey Seager by all accounts is going to get paid in a big way this offseason so for the Dodgers the numbers would have to line up and I'm not sure they will just with looking at the rest of their payroll commitments some of the other guys are going to want to eventually extend and given they kind of have a replacement in hand at least for next year with Turner at short you move Gavin Lux over to second they might choose to spend their money in other ways whether it means extending Walker Bueller or just figuring out the best pieces to bring back. But they would love to have Corey Seager back, and I know Corey Seager would love to be back, but it's just going to be about making the numbers working, and uh, I'm not 100% sure they're going to. It's going to be a fascinating offseason in just a couple of weeks, basically. I can't believe it's already mid-October. But, uh, Kyle, appreciate you spending a couple minutes with me here on Saturday afternoon. Enjoy the two ball games later today, Game 2 of the uh, ALCS and Game 1 of the NLCS. Um, Enjoy those ball games, and we'll do this again soon. Sounds good. Anytime. There he goes. Kyle Glazer, national baseball writer for Baseball America. Baseball America, of course, is is where you get a lot of really good information about prospects and, and so on. I would say Baseball America and MLB Pipeline are two of my favorite sources when it comes to uh, prospects and and the like. And as, uh, as Kyle mentioned, Corey Seager is going to be a uh, hot name when it comes to any offseason additions for, I would say for any team, but certainly for the Blue Jays, right? Like I know a lot of people, and it's funny because we were talking about Carlos Correa, right? I know a lot of people would love to see Carlos Correa play for the Blue Jays. I know a lot of people would also love to never see him suit up in a Blue Jays uniform. Um, And I guess it was the same way when George Springer 
signed up to be a, a Toronto Blue Jay for, for $150 million. And you know what? I'm glad he is a Toronto Blue Jay, and I bet a lot of people listening do as well. Um, and I, I, I'm sure there will be to a degree. If the Blue Jays are interested in signing Carlos Correa, I am sure that George Springer will go out and do some recruiting. I'm sure he will, right? And I, I, I would almost kind of expect it, right? I mean, you never really know with these guys, but I, um, I would expect it. But at the same time, I, I can't see Carlos Correa being a massive priority in terms of off-season additions for the Blue Jays, despite the fact that he is probably going to be the top free agent target just of any any position player on the market come, come this off-season, right? I just feel like when it comes to Correa, it makes too much sense for him to re-sign in Houston, given his what he means to that fan base and what he means to the team. I mean, they've already lost Springer. Do they really want to lose Correa as well? I mean, maybe if some team really backs up the Brinks truck, maybe he will sign elsewhere. But I feel like Houston is going to be the uh, end, end up being the likeliest destination for him. I only brought up Corey Seager with uh, Kyle there at the end of that chat, just because I feel like Corey Seager probably won't be as expensive as Correa. And I wouldn't mind seeing... Seager play third base for the Blue Jays next year, right? Like, I know we've had the third base conversation for the Toronto Blue Jays a lot, and we will have that a lot going forward because beyond whatever happens with Marcus Simeon and the second base situation and beyond whatever happens with Robbie Ray and filling out the rest of the starting rotation, those are two really, you know, really huge priorities. The third base situation for the Toronto Blue Jays going into next season is so fascinating to me because you could answer that question in any number of ways. You can answer it by having Santiago Espinal, be the uh, maybe the 75% everyday third baseman, if that's what you want, if you believe that his approximately 250 at-bats is enough to make him the, the everyday third baseman. I know a lot of people have said to me in the past, including guys like Jeff Blair and, and Barker and uh, Ben Nicholson-Smith have said things like, you know, maybe you want to see more like 700, 750, maybe 800 at-bats before you say, you know what, yes to Santiago Espinal at third base every day. But... Uh, yeah. whether, whether it's Jose Ramirez, I'm sure the connections between the Cleveland front office and uh, Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro, who used to be the Cleveland front office, will prove to be invaluable because I know a lot of people, myself included, would love to see Jose Ramirez be the everyday third baseman for the Toronto Blue Jays starting in 2022. But I just wonder with a couple, I believe it's a club option left on Ramirez's deal going into the 2022 season. I just wonder how feasible that is. I wonder how feasible that is and how expensive it would be. Um, I, Cause I don't really want the Blue Jays myself. I don't, I would not like care to see them give up too many prospects. And again, maybe Austin Martin and Simeon Wood Richardson is something that ended up being palatable considering what you got from Jose Barrios. But uh yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to be seeing the Blue Jays give up too too many prospects. Um, I do have a clip here I want to play for you guys. So, uh, we had Kyle on from Baseball America. Baseball America does a number of great podcasts as well, and uh, JJ Cooper and Josh Norris are two uh, writers and editors, respectively, for Baseball America. And both JJ and Josh have actually been on the station. Have been on shows that I have both hosted and produced in the past, and both uh, friends of the station and uh, their Baseball America podcast, like you might imagine, largely has to do with prospects because that is a, 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 the bread and butter of Baseball America, I would say, again, along with MLB Pipeline. And uh, they had a little conversation about the Blue Jays' top prospect right now, Gabriel Moreno. And I want to play this little clip for you because I think you will be very pleased with what they both had to say. So this is J.J. Cooper and Josh Norris talking about Gabriel Moreno. We also, as we normally do, we're going to see guys in the AFL who are here largely because they're making up for lost time because of injuries. And I can't think of a guy more exciting for that than Gabriel Moreno. Oh, sweet mercy. I would walk there on bare feet to see that guy. I remember I live in North Carolina. 
<clears throat> the reviews we were getting on Gabriel Moreno were, the, I think, the best reviews on any player I've gotten in eight years of being at Baseball America. He, every guy came back with either all-star, perennial all-star, or even better than that. Uh, you know, I, on my personal board, have him as the top catcher in the minor leagues, and I understand Abdi Rutschman exists. It's not a huge swath, but I, I just could not, could not have even fathomed the things that were coming out of scouts' mouths about him. I mean, there was one a quote in our Northwest, our Northeastern League, Double A, um, uh, top ten, that was uh, something like, "It's not a question of whether he's going to be an All Star. It's the amount of All Star games he's going to make by the time he's thirty. And it's like, and another who you know, put him in the Hall of Fame. It's like, wow, okay. And the only thing I think that may have prevented him from you know, jumping Adley is the fact that he broke his thumb. When I think you guys, uh, if we'd find the Slack message, you could think it was it was literally dripping with rage when I saw he wasn't on the Futures game rosters. Before I knew he was uh, injured, I was like, what is happening? You might as well not even have this event if you are going to not have Gabriel Moreno on it because he is the future of this sport and the future of the Blue Jays. And he's going to be sitting at home. Oh, no, he broke his thumb. Okay, fine. You get a pass this time, Futures game, but you're on notice. Uh, so I'm very, 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 very excited to see him. Yeah, there you go. The future of the Blue Jays. That's uh, J.J. Cooper and Josh Norris talking on the Baseball America podcast about Gabriel Moreno. And, I mean, boy, I, I, I don't know that we would have necessarily seen him come up to the majors this year had he not broken his thumb like maybe we would have maybe we would have had the blue jays made the playoffs or i you know what they were so close to making the playoffs it's it's that's kind of a moot point right they were literally one game away from making the playoffs so maybe that's a moot point maybe they maybe the timeline for moreno, moreno never would have changed broken thumb or not maybe we see him in 2022 but either way those those words and he was quoting scouts and and other executives around major league baseball that has got to get you extremely excited if you're a Toronto Blue Jays fan. How many times over the past, gosh, I guess I guess we're going back to 2018 now, or thereabouts, right? When when Vladimir Guerrero Jr. was being called up and Bo Bichette was being called up and Biggio was being called up. And you remember, I mean, even on, on this very station, we would have time. It was so exciting when Vladimir Guerrero Jr. got called up. We would have times where we would go in-game to his at bats for the Buffalo Bisons, right? Like we did, we did stuff like that, and and here we are talking about Gabriel Moreno being a multiple-time All-Star and maybe being a Hall of Famer. Now, again, I know baseball prospects and the the progression for baseball prospects is never linear. It's never linear, and you know all of the promise in the world could be derailed. But I mean, look, just I mean, I, I know I've I've complained about this guy a lot in the past, but Wander Franco for the Tampa Bay Rays, he was made out to be the the next best thing since sliced bread. And, and then he came up here and was the next best thing since sliced bread, right? He was very, very, very good for the Tampa Bay Rays. And he basically delivered on all sorts of things, right? I think it, I want to say his on-base streak broke streaks set by guys like Joe DiMaggio and so on, right? Like the legends of the game. And he was breaking it for uh, for like guys aged 20-something and under, right? It was like, a, you know, you you'd certainly have the, the caveats like that when it comes to young players. But it was, and, and a lot of those apply to Vladimir Guerrero Jr. as well. But it's just, 
just fascinating that we're at now, we can now at least have this conversation about Gabriel Mourinho and Adley Rutschman, who is viewed as the consensus uh, top catcher, I believe is a prospect of the Baltimore Orioles. Rutschman was viewed as a top catcher for many years, it felt like, and now Mourinho has surpassed him. Again, that has got to get you really excited. And he will play for a, in a position group for the Blue Jays that's already relatively good, right? Danny Jansen and Alejandro Kirk. I mean, I don't want to leave out Reese McGuire, but I, I'm not convinced that guy is long for this roster despite his uh, contributions up and down this year, especially when, when guys were injured, both Danny Jansen and Alejandro Kirk missing time. But so, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not crapping on Reese McGuire. It's just, uh, I, when it comes to the, the, the catchers of the future, it could be Jansen and Mourinho. It could be Kirk and Mourinho. And, and, and if you have all three, do you trade one for, for prospect or for prospect capital to a, to a catcher needy team, much like happened with Riley Adams. And we'll never talk about the Riley Adams trade ever again. We'll never talk about that trade ever again. Brad Hand for Riley Adams, and then Riley Adams coming back to haunt the Blue Jays later. Like, what, weeks later? No, thank you. Absolutely not. But I, but I do think that, uh, ultimately speaking, the catching situation for the Blue Jays will be fascinating to watch come 2022 because I am sure at the, at the most, the, 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 the soonest sign of trouble for Jansen and or Kirk, we will be clamoring to see in Gabriel Mourinho. But we'll be keeping an eye on that as the offseason develops. But again, if you want to listen to that pod, that is on the Baseball America website. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we will be turning our attention to the NFL. A quick NFL hour coming up at 4 o'clock. Heather Prusak from New Swore Buffalo will join us to chat about the surprising, maybe not surprising, but the very impressive Buffalo Bills as they're going to take on the Tennessee Titans on Monday Night Football, a week after they demolished Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. And later in the next hour, we will also chat uh, some NFL as well with Brad Gagnon from Bleacher Report. And we'll uh, go around the NFL, including who is in the MVP race this early in the season. But an NFL hour coming up next on Sportsnet Today. I'm Show Ali. We'll be back after these messages across the Sportsnet radio network. This is Sportsnet Today on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Sportsnet today across the Sportsnet radio network. Letting the music ride a little bit. I like this song. Show Ali with you until 6 p.m. Eastern. I've been saying this a lot, but after six, at 6 p.m., we'll be uh, making way for Leafs Nation pregame with Brent Gunning and Gord Stelic. They have an hour of pregame. I'm sure you'll hear from uh, Sheldon Keefe and the other principals in tonight's game against the Ottawa Senators. That game goes at 7 p.m. on Hockey Night in Canada and on radio right here on Sportsnet 590 The Fan and the Leafs radio network. Joe Bone and Jim Ralph will have the call of that game game three in the season if you missed it earlier if you missed my chat with gord earlier in the program no uh no peter morazic it was going to be jack campbell anyways but peter morazic suffering a groin injury and had to leave after the first two periods of play and then of course uh justin hall injured as well so a couple injuries in the early season for the toronto maple leafs but uh gord and brent will have all your leafs coverage after this program, Gus Katsaros will join us at 5.30 p.m. for a quick Leafs reset. We'll chat with him about Mitch Marner and William Nylander continuing to stay hot, even uh, going back to last year's playoffs against the uh, 
the Montreal Canadiens. I know we all like to forget that series, but uh, William Elander was very hot in that series. So that's coming up later in the program. Heather Prusak from News 4 Buffalo will be along very shortly. Uh, we'll chat about the uh, amazing Buffalo Bills start to the season. They they lost the first game of the year to the, to the Pittsburgh Steelers and since then have won four straight. They have 172 points for and 64 points allowed. That is... I, I believe that is tops in the AFC, which is not something you would have necessarily expected coming into this season, right? I mean, you would have expected maybe the Kansas City Chiefs to be up there, certainly the Baltimore Ravens to be up there, and they are right now, right? But uh, I think uh, everyone, maybe the Chargers surprised people as well, but the Buffalo Bills have been absolutely phenomenal this year, getting off to a 4-1 and one start. And uh, as I said, we are now joined by Heather Prusak from News for Buffalo. And Heather, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with me on a Saturday afternoon. And as I mentioned... Great season after the week one loss to the Steelers. It, it, it kind of feels like maybe not only how the Bills have gone, but how the Steelers have gone as well, that maybe that week one loss was kind of a fluke when you look back. Yeah, a little bit. I, I think that, you know, it's kind of a combination of a couple things when I really take a look at it now. I think, you know, Pittsburgh's defense, I mean, that their front four is phenomenal. So I do, I will give Pittsburgh credit there. But also I think, you know, what might have contributed to it is the fact that Josh Allen and a lot of these starters didn't play much in the preseason. So it kind of almost seemed like they were still maybe not trying to find the chemistry within, you know, within each other with the offense, but, you know, just even just simple things of timing and, um, you know, just getting things going. I think that, you know, maybe that first game was sort of like an extension of the preseason, if you will, because the defense played really well in that game. So, um, you know, when you look back on it, it's just kind of funny to think, wow, um, you know, as you mentioned, both teams have gone in very different directions there. So, um, you know, but the Bills have certainly found their rhythm. They've gotten in a groove and, you know, this city is absolutely buzzing, as you can imagine. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I can I can only imagine. It's been a lot of fun to watch from afar. I can only imagine what it's be what it's been like uh, when you're in the thick of it. And, and, you know, the defense looks fantastic, Heather, right? They're just eating opposing quarterbacks and running backs for breakfast, right? Like, do you think the win over the Chiefs from last weekend Perhaps could be, I'm not sure if this is hyperbole, so I want you to tell me if it is or not, but it could be <laughs> the uh, biggest statement win, at least in the Sean McDermott, Josh Allen era. Yeah, you know, I actually said that on the air the other day um, that it would, you know, it definitely is one of, if not the biggest win so far since they've taken over and since they've come here and, you know, Sean McDermott, Brandon Bean, Josh Allen, um, you know, I would definitely say the biggest regular season win, you know, not including right. uh, the postseason, obviously. But, yeah, absolutely. I think that's for sure fair to say because, look, I mean, they changed a lot of narratives after that game. And also it's not only the fact of that they won and they beat the Chiefs, but it's, it's how they won, too. It's not like they won, you know, on a last-second field goal or, you know, there were some – fluky things that happen. I mean, they just flat out dominated um, on, on both sides of the ball, really. I mean, you mentioned the defense. It's kind of, uh, you know, maybe ironic's not the right word, but it's it's fitting. I'll say it's fitting that rookie defensive end Greg Rousseau had the game that he did. He had his first career interception. Uh, he had a sack in that game. He was named AFC Defensive Player of the Week. It's very fitting that he had the game he did against the Chiefs because that loss in the AFC title game was really what fueled Brandon Bean to go out and boost and really revamp this defensive line because that loss, they just could not 
you know, they got a little bit of pressure on Patrick Mahomes. They just couldn't get him to the ground, and that was the difference in that game. And then you saw what Tampa Bay was able to do to Mahomes in the Super Bowl, and there you go. That's a big difference in the in that game, in the AFC title game last year. So very fitting that we saw the play that we did from Rousseau. Um, the rotation on the defensive line has been fantastic. They're just getting contributions from all different guys. And, um, you know, the, the, the secondary is playing very well as we expected. I mean, Micah Hyde's just on a different level right now. I asked him uh, the other day if he's playing his best football, and he's, you know, kind of shrugged off. You know, he's not going to sit there and give himself all kind of, kinds of praise, but I will for sure. <laughs> yeah, he has been Micah Hyde and Trey White and the, and the whole group of, uh, of, of defensive backs, let's say, for the Buffalo Bills have been nothing short of extraordinary. How, how, do, you, how do you expect, Heather, and we're chatting with Heather Prusak from News 4 Buffalo here, how do you expect the uh, Bills defense to cover the Titans' wideouts, right? Because it's been a... It's been a weird season for Tennessee, certainly, right? I mean, essentially, uh, both A.J. Brown and Julio Jones and other guys have missed time with injury. I believe it was hamstring injuries for both Brown and Julio, but last Mm -hmm. week, A.J. Brown was on the field for most of the snaps, so it seems like he'll be fine for this uh, Monday night. But can we simply expect uh, coverage on, like, single single corner coverage on A.J. Brown and then a group effort with Micah Hyde and everyone else against Julio if he does play and everyone else? Yeah, I would I would say that that's fair. I mean, I think that it kind of depends on how the game's going because obviously no, we know with the Titans offense it is centered around their running game with Derrick Henry. So if they feel, you know, if, if the Bills defense is going to stack the box and they're going to really, you know, key in and force Ryan Tannehill to have to throw the ball, then we, I mean, we also could see Trey White shadow Julio Jones in this one. They might go that route to start and kind of see, um, you know, how the game evolves. Because another thing, too, this Bills defense has done a great job, too, at making in-game adjustments. I know that sounds cliche, but really, I mean, we have seen that, uh, especially over the past four games. So I wouldn't be surprised if to start, we saw maybe maybe kind of just Trey on on Julio, and because as you mentioned, he's coming off a hamstring injury, missed the past few games, so we don't know what kind of uh, physical condition he's going to be in, if he's going to be on any kind of snap count, or if they're still easing him in, whatnot. So um, physically, we're not it's not we're not completely sure how he's going to be. So, but I will say, um, you know, I watched back a little bit of their Week Two game against Seattle, where. Julio had six catches for 128 yards, which is funny because he he's hasn't he's only played two full games this season, and he leads the, the Titans in receiving yards. But that just goes to show you how much they rely on Derrick Henry. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw Trey on on Julio to start, and then of course the rest of them really focusing on stacking the box, limiting Derrick Henry's production. But if if it turns into something where Ryan Tannehill starts to open it up and they not abandon the run because the Titans don't really ever do that. But if they kind of go more to the passing game, then we could see a little bit more attention going to Julio Jones. If he gets going like he did in that game against Seattle. It is funny. The the Titans do kind of feel like, especially in recent weeks, because of all the injuries to their wide receivers, it does kind of feel like their playbook from Mike Vrabel is literally run the ball to Derrick Henry on first down, run the ball to Derrick Henry on third on second down, and uh, <laughs> and check it down to Derrick Henry on third down. That's kind of their their playbook in the last couple of weeks. I just you know with with the game being on Monday night, um, I believe Matt Milano had I think it was a hamstring injury of his own. Do you expect Milano to play, um, especially considering that they're going to probably need his services against someone like Derrick Henry. 
I do expect Nat Milano to play. He actually, he was limited in practice on Thursday and Friday, and then he was a full participant to this morning. Now, obviously, they just have a light walkthrough because today is like a typical Friday would be, um, but because it's on Monday night, everything's pushed back a day. So um, he was a full go today in their walkthrough, and he does not have an injury designation. So uh, he, and Sean McDermott said he, he expects him to be good to go. So I, I do expect Milano to play again, kind of similar to what I said about Julio Jones, not knowing exactly how much, you know, how much playing time he'll get. If he is okay, Milano will kind of have to see how that goes as well. But if he's, if he's a full go, I expect him to be out there as much as he can, as much as they need him, especially going up against a guy uh, like Derek Henry, where, you know, you, you've got to have your full attention on him because, that is what he he is the Titans offense. He is what what makes them go. I mean, he is just you know even um, you know a bunch of guys. Even Sean McDermott was asked this week about last year, if you remember, in that game. It was a Tuesday because of all of the um, COVID issues right. that the Titans were having, and the game was moved to a Tuesday. And that stiff arm that Derrick Henry had on at the time, Bills cornerback Josh Norman. Um, that that's a highlight that, you know, guys, people around here remember, the Bills remember. Um, so it's something that we know how powerful he he can be. Um, you know, that that's just one example of you know, he's done that many times. So, uh, you know, having that Milano out there is certainly a huge boost. And then on the bright side, even if he's not 100 percent and he's still you know, out there for as much time as he normally would be. The Bills have their bye week next week, so he can, you know, rest up and fully recover after this game. Chatting with Heather Prusak, sports reporter for News for Buffalo. Yeah, that a stiff arm that Derrick Henry laid on Josh Norman. That, <laughs> he got, like, banished to the shadow realm or something after oh that game. Oh, my gosh. That was a- <laughs> it was... Well, that was just that was an all timer. Yeah, it was it was fun to watch as like a as a as a neutral party, <laughs> let's say. But I can only imagine how you must have felt if you're a Bills fan um, watching Josh Norman get stiff armed by Derrick Henry. I do want to uh, talk a little bit about the offense here, and you know, one guy who looks like he is uh, drinking from the fountain of youth is Emmanuel Sanders, right? Especially since joining the, the <laughs> yeah. Buffalo Bills, I, I kind of thought he was more washed up. I freely admit, judging from his days with uh, New Orleans and so on, but here he is. I mean, how has Sanders been? so good is, is it as simply as this is what happens when you get to play with someone like josh allen who has a, a cannon for an arm yeah you know it's funny i asked uh emmanuel yesterday after practice i said you know have you you know i was like you've obviously been in the league for a while you've been on a couple different teams i'm like have you ever clicked with a quarterback this quickly as you have with josh allen and he laughed he goes yeah, yeah, I have. And he was laughing. He goes, you know, you know, Peyton and I, he goes, we, we, we clicked pretty, um, we clicked pretty quickly as well. He's like, you know, I could sit up here and say, oh, no, Josh, you know, he's the only one. But he goes, no, it's just because when you have that caliber of, um, of a quarterback, it's just they make it easy to get on the same page and gel quickly. So um, what he's been able to do, I will admit, I'm, I'm surprised and not in the sense of I didn't think Emmanuel Sanders had the talent, but just, um, I guess just just this at this point in the season, how early and how productive he's been able to be so quickly. Um, but it also goes to show you just how much talent they have in that uh, wide receiving core. Because when teams the teams go to key in on Stefan Diggs and try to limit him and and take away his production, 
that's going to open things up for a guy like Emmanuel Sanders or even Dawson Knox. I mean, what we're seeing out of him in year three uh, is, is great. And also too, when you look at, you know, he says that it's his confidence is up and, um, you know, I talked to him in the summer and he said he actually worked with a vision specialist in the off season because he's dealt with drops a lot so far in his career. And we really have not seen that through five games. He's been a great weapon for Josh Allen. So it's kind of funny because going into the season, you know, the big guys we talk about, obviously Stefan Diggs and, you know, even Cole Beasley and then Gabriel Davis coming off of a very, very impressive rookie season. Those were kind of the guys that were really talked about. And now you look at the production and who's scoring the touchdowns right now. And we're talking about Emmanuel Sanders, the, you know, 34 year old vet and Dawson Knox, who really up to this point in his career hasn't been that involved in the passing game. And now he's already got five touchdowns. Um, I believe that that's best in the NFL among tight ends. So he's already surpassed his career high in touchdown catches. It was three. Now it's five. So I really, really like what I see out of Dawson Knox. And, um, but yeah, Emmanuel Sanders has been a fantastic addition for this Bills offense, especially after losing John Brown. Um, after he left, he kind of Emmanuel Sanders kind of came in, and he's almost a, a um, improved version of John Brown, just in what he can do and his versatility. You know, his ability to play inside and outside. He's also got speed, ability to create separation. So um, I really also like what I'm seeing out of Emmanuel Sanders as well. Yeah, Sanders has uh, more than capably filled in in uh, in his first year down in Buffalo. Um, Heather, before I let you go, I just want to ask you one thing. I was maybe not maybe not concerned is not the right word, but more curious about coming into the season would have been the split job between the running backs between uh, Zach Moss and Devin Singletary. And Moss has seemingly taken over that job, I guess, as well as anyone can when you have a QB like Josh Allen who runs himself. Why why do you think that is? I think Zach Moss he. I think part of it is it's just he's that physical, not afraid to make contact kind of a guy. And it's it's interesting when looking at this running back room right now, even though and I, I will add Nat Breida in there, even though he's been inactive for the past couple of weeks. But just looking at the three of them between Devin Singletary, Zach Moss and Matt Breida, all three of them kind of bring something different. Right. I mean, you've got Devin Singletary, who's that shifty, elusive um in between the tackles kind of runner. Then you've got Zach Moss, who's just a bulldozer. I mean, he's so physical. He, you know, he's even said his rookie season, I think he's like, I'm not afraid to make contact. I'm not afraid to, you know, get in a defender's face and just move the pile and do whatever I have to do, that downhill runner. And then Brito, when he has played, he brings that burst of speed option. So all three of them have a different element to this room. Um, but with the running game, that was, that was really the only area of improvement that we needed to see on this offense from last season for how good it was the offense as a whole. That was the kind of weakness there. And other than the pass rush, that was kind of the next thing on the list of things to improve um, that guys talked about at the end of the season last year was we need to um, not necessarily run the ball more because let's face it, Brian Dable's not going to take the ball out of Josh Allen's hands anytime soon, but it's more of, being more efficient when we do run the ball. And I think that so far we've seen a a drastic improvement from that. I mean, even 
um, you know, Zach Moss and Devin Singletary, but Zach Moss, especially, he's gotten some, you know, double digit yards, run some big chunk plays. I was, the moment that kind of stuck out to me with Zach Moss so far this season is um, he had a fumble. I believe it was against Miami. Yes, it was against Miami in week two. Um, he had a fumble. He had been inactive for the season opener against Pittsburgh. It was a healthy scratch. Then in week two, he's active. He, he fumbles the ball, turns it over. Miami recovers. And Sean McDermott goes right back to him, doesn't bench him or anything like that, and he comes up with two touchdowns. So that was really impressive to me, not only from the coaching aspect of, hey, we're going to stick with him and we're going to you know show confidence in him and, and not – you know, make him, you know, bench him or, or sit him out. Um, but also impressed by the fact that Moss is able to bounce back like that because it can be very easily for um, a player, especially a guy that young, to let it get in your head and whatever. But to show that, um, you know, the, to have the mental strength and capacity to flush it, move on, and not only move on, but, you know, produce and, and contribute in a big way like that, um, I think that that speaks volumes about the kind of player he is. Oh yeah, not not every player has the mental, I guess, fortitude to to move on from things like that, and we've seen it affect uh, other players as well. But Zach Moss has been terrific for the Buffalo Bills in their four and one start to the season. They'll take on the Tennessee Titans on Monday night football. But I'm chatting with Heather Prusak, a sports reporter from News for Buffalo. Heather, I always appreciate you being so generous with your time for me. Um, enjoy the rest of your Saturday and enjoy the game on Monday night as well. Sounds good. Talk to you guys soon. Thanks for having me. There she goes. Heather Prusak from News for Buffalo. Always a fun fun time chatting with our pals down south of the border. And yeah, the Buffalo Bills and their 4-1 and start have been probably probably the best team in the AFC. Is that fair to say? I know I know the uh, the the Las Vegas Raiders got off to a pretty hot start and now they are uh, embattled with all the things going on with John Gruden and the larger NFL investigation. You got the Chargers, who are also off to a four and one start, and they are probably the only team I would put in the same conversation as the Bills right now. The Baltimore Ravens are still four and one as well, but I feel like, and I, maybe I'm biased, but I feel like the the Baltimore Ravens have had a relatively speaking easier schedule than the Bills or Chargers have had to start the season. Um, the Chargers going up against an undefeated Raiders team at the time, the Chiefs themselves and Patrick Mahomes, the Bills facing Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. And maybe the answer to that simply is, are the Chiefs as good as we thought they were? Maybe the answer to that is simply no, right? Maybe that is maybe that is the very, very, very simple answer. Um, I still think in the end, the Chiefs will pull it out, especially with an extra game in the season this this year, 17-game season, not an 18-game season, right? So I think that's something to, to worth monitoring, right? It's only it's only uh, week six right now. We got the Eagles uh, Buccaneers game on Thursday night to kick off week six, but the bulk of the games will go tomorrow and uh, we'll certainly be monitoring the Chargers game and the Ravens game as well. Uh, but the Buffalo Bills play on uh, Monday night, as I said, against the Tennessee Titans. And look, I mean, the Titans are also ahead of their division at three and two, but at the same time, are is the AFC South maybe better ways to say it is the AFC South really all that good of a division I would say the answer is no right the Tennessee Titans lead that division with with a three and two record the the Texans the Texans a team that many people thought would be one of the worst teams in the NFL and you know what they are one of the worst teams in the NFL at one and four are in second place at one and four the Colts are one and four they are in third place the Jacksonville Jaguars are zero and five so that means basically means three teams in the AFC South I've combined for two wins through five weeks of football, right? So I, I I hesitate to say that this is a super dangerous matchup for the Bills. I don't want to, you know, trap game, maybe, maybe. But ultimately speaking, you would expect 
the Bills to to basically wipe the floor with the Tennessee Titans on Monday night, given the way their defense has been playing, given all the injuries the Tennessee Titans have been uh, have been mounting so far to guys like A.J. Brown and Julio and Westbrook and so on, right? So that'll be one thing to monitor. Coming up next, uh, later in this hour, uh, we'll chat with Brad Gagnon, Bleacher, Bleacher Report National NFL writer. Brad's a, a friend of the show. He comes on pretty often with us during NFL season. Um, we'll chat with him, I'm sure, about the Buffalo Bills and his uh, his take on their place within a stacked AFC. I want to ask him about the MVP race as well. Lamar Jackson putting himself squarely back in the MVP conversation and what he thinks of the Justin Herbert revisionism. Kind of feels like some people are uh, are changing their tune on Justin Herbert after largely panning his selection when he was taken uh, very highly by the Chargers just last season. But that's straight ahead. Brad Gagno, I'm Show Ali. You can always text us at 590-590, but anything you want, the Blue Jays, the NFL, uh, the the ongoing MLB postseason, whatever you want, you can text us at 590-590. Leave your name and location. We'll get to those texts a little later on. But you're listening to Sportsnet today, which will continue after these messages across the Sportsnet radio network. Sportsnet 590, the fan. Sportsnet today across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Show Ali with you until 6 p.m. Eastern, at which point we will make way for Leafs Nation pregame with Brent Gunning and Gord Stellick. They'll get you set for about an hour's time for Leafs Sends. That's going to go across the uh, Sportsnet Radio Network, the Leafs Radio Network, I guess I should say. And, of course, right here locally on our flagship station, Sportsnet 590, the fan at 7 p.m. The boys will be down at Scotiabank Arena, and of course, Joe Bone and Jim Jim Ralph will be uh, Joe Bone and Jim Ralph will have the call as always. But right now, uh, we're, we're going to get connected with Brad Gagnon, uh, national NFL writer for Bleacher Report, in just a couple of minutes. Um, but uh, I do want to talk a little bit about the NFL because um, this is our—I guess this is our NFL hour, I suppose. We're calling it, right, NFL Hour of Power, let's say, the 4 p.m. hour on, on a Saturday afternoon right here on, on The Fan. But um, I, I do want to talk a little bit more about the NFL because we, we spent a little bit of time after we, we spoke with Heather Prusak in the previous hour about the AFC. If you look over at the NFC, it's a much more crowded picture, right? I know there are three kind of front runners in the AFC, the Ravens, the Chargers, and the Bills. And like I said before, will the Chiefs come back and, and make something of themselves this season? Probably, probably. But when you look at the the NFC, it is a little more crowded because you have the undefeated Arizona Cardinals. They're going to take on the Cleveland Browns um, tomorrow. They're 5-0. and The Browns, I believe, are, let's see, the Browns are 3-2. and And the Browns have had some tough losses this year, right? Like last last week, uh, the Browns lost, I want to say it was 48-42 or 49-42 or something like that to the uh, Los Angeles Chargers. They had 531 yards of offense, 42 points, no turnovers, and they lost that game. I think that's the first time in NFL history that a team scored over 500 yards of offense, over 40 points, no turnovers, and lost, right? Which is just absolutely remarkable. So uh, so that, they're going to take on the Cardinals, who are 5-0. and oh, And in that same division, you have Matthew Stafford, and the Los Angeles Rams. Now, I remember when Stafford was traded from the Detroit Lions to the Rams. Uh, I believe it was just a one-for-one trade with, with Jared Goff, right? So Goff now the QB in Detroit and uh, 
and Stafford, the QB in Los Angeles. And a lot of people said, well, this makes the Rams instant Super Bowl contenders. Instantly, they become Super Bowl contenders. And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, you know what? I do agree. I do agree with that. I do kind of buy into that. But at the same time, do I think they're going to be one of the best teams in the NFC? Eh, you know, quarterback changes are not always super smooth. This, I got to say, I was wrong about. Like, I, I definitely thought they'd be good. I did, did I think they'd get off to a 4-1 and one start and probably be the, uh, maybe the, maybe not the presumptive favorite, but at least one of the, if not the best team in a, in a very crowded NFC? Boy, they have been, they just have been absolutely fun to watch. Cooper Cup, Robert Woods contributing, Darrell Henderson Jr. contributing, Sonny Michelle learning the playbook as well. The defense with Jalen Ramsey and Aaron Donald being very, very good as well. The Rams are as complete a team as you'll see. I'm curious to see if Matthew Stafford will remain healthy. I, I always hesitate to call people. We were talking about this in the previous segment. I, I hesitate to say that anyone is ever injury prone. Because injuries are, are freak accidents, right? I mean, you know, people say Saquon Barkley is injury prone. I, I don't know if I necessarily think he's injury prone because there are things that happen so, you know, individual from other injuries, right? Like remember Keenan Allen used to be called injury prone and he had like a lacerated spleen of all things. It's like, I don't know, how much can you really count on a lacerated spleen and call someone injury prone, right? So I, I again, I hesitate to use the word injury prone, but Matthew Stafford has had some back injuries which uh, have hampered him during his time with the Detroit Lions. And he is one of the tougher guys, I think, in the entire NFL from a QB standpoint. And I'm glad he's finally getting backed up by a very good team. And I know some people will say, well, he had Calvin Johnson. He played with Megatron. He had some very good teams. You know what? The one time he actually had a good team with decent defense, they went to the playoffs. Yes, they lost. I believe it was to the New Orleans Saints, but they still went to the playoffs. And here he is with another with another very good defense, with very good offensive pieces that complement him, and a head coach in Sean McVay, who is probably the best head coach of Matthew Stafford's career. His entire career. And I, I very much look forward to seeing what Stafford does uh, for the rest of the year. So again, the Rams are 4-1. and one, The Cards are 5-0. and oh. The Seahawks in that same division certainly are, are not contenders by any means, but they will be playing the Pittsburgh Steelers on Sunday night football. And um, they are 2-3 and three on the year. And boy... After Russell Wilson went out with the, I believe it was a ruptured middle finger tendon. After he went out with injury, it is, uh, <laughs> that is uh, not something a lot of teams can survive. And it's actually pretty remarkable considering that Russell Wilson has been largely very durable for the vast majority of his career. Um, so it's unfortunate he, he went out with this injury and hopefully he's back, you know, sooner rather than later. But uh, what are you going to do? Geno Smith filling in at QB for the Seattle Seahawks. If you knew that Geno Smith was the backup for the Seahawks going into this season, I commend you. Good for you. I had no idea that was Geno Smith. So good for you for knowing that the former Jets QB, Geno Smith, was Russell Wilson's backup. I do want to get, since we're still waiting to connect with Brad Gagno uh, from Bleacher Report, um, I want to remind you all, if you're a fantasy football player, owner, manager, whatever you want to call yourself, right? If you play fantasy football, Andy McNamara and myself do host the fantasy show every uh, every Sunday morning from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern across the Sportsnet Radio Network. We're on in Calgary and in Vancouver and in some other places as well. You can always text us at 590-590 um, in the morning and leave your fantasy football questions uh, and we will get to all of them. If we don't get to them on the air, we do answer all of them off the air as well. I usually give Andy a call and then we'll uh, we'll uh, answer them on the phone. He's a little he's a little short with me sometimes, especially when the Browns are about to play at one p.m. So we'll we, we'll we'll blaze through them. And we'll get to all your questions. But every week I do write 
uh, for sportsnet.ca, flexing my, uh, my former uh, writing muscles, let's say. I do write for sportsnet.ca a weekly start-sit article, which is edited by the great team at, at the digital side of things on the web desk. And, you know, I have some start-sits for you here. Now, Matthew Stafford is a, is a start, and you might think to yourself, why is he a start? You know, everyone knows to start Matthew Stafford. I'll be honest, more people have gone on the uh, Stafford bandwagon as of late, but uh, I, I waxed poetic about him earlier. I won't do it again. I'll just say this. If you're looking for a fantasy start-sit and you're on the fence about Stafford, if he's if he's somehow available in your league, I doubt he is, but if he is somehow available, I would recommend starting him against a Giants defense that gives up the ninth most fantasy points to quarterbacks through five weeks, right? You can just set it in, forget it when it comes to Matthew Stafford. We'll continue the rest of these start sits uh, in a couple of minutes, but uh, right now, very pleased to be joined by Brad Gagno, national NFL writer for Bleacher Report. And uh, Brad, thank you so much for joining us today. I won't keep you very long, but I, I, I was uh, just saying just now, I, I've been talking a lot about the Rams and Matthew Stafford. I just, did you expect, I know we all expected the Rams to be very good with Stafford as long as he can remain healthy. But right now, with Stafford playing the way he's been playing, he looks like one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL and the Rams look like one of the most complete teams in the NFL. And that's in a division that has the undefeated 5-0 Arizona Cardinals. Yeah, yeah, they're um, you know they're, they look like a top five team. The staffer looks like a top five quarterback, and it helps when you have a top five coach and a top one defensive lineman in Aaron Donald and a top I don't know let's call it top three cornerback in Jalen Ramsey. Um, you know, I, I love to describe them as a top heavy team, right? In that they don't have much of a middle class on that roster. They don't have a lower class on that roster um, in terms of uh, um, you know depth. Um, they've bled every off season for seemingly five, six years in a row now. They don't have a first-round pick until, like, like the, like the 22nd century. So, um, you know, they, they, as a result, they've lost a lot of talent in that middle, right? And, and, and it's all or not. If Stafford goes down, season's over. Donald goes down, season's over. Probably the same thing for Jalen Ramsey. Those three guys are the key to everything. You know, maybe Andrew Whitworth at left tackle and, and some of the targets they have. But they have so many different weapons that if they lose one or two, it's not necessarily a deal-breaker either, you know. So, it's all about that core, you know, McVay and Stafford and Donald and Ramsey. And if those guys are, are on fire as they've been for much of the season, in particular Stafford, as you mentioned, you know, they're going to be a Super Bowl contender. If any of them aren't there, um, they're likely to have a lot of trouble winning that division, considering the low margin for error as a result of the presence of the 5-0 and Cardinals, as you mentioned, and, and still even the 49ers and Seahawks. Seattle's probably out of it if, if they don't have Russell Wilson for multiple weeks at a 2-3 and three start. But you can't rule them totally out yet, and same for, for the 49ers. You know, I want to ask you a little bit about the, uh, the NFC picture when it comes to the top teams. Now, we just talked about the Rams and the Cards. Um, you know, they got the Packers at four and one. You have the Cowboys at four and one. You have the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who played on Thursday night. They're on they're at five and one. And then you have maybe the Panthers at three and two in the second tier of teams. I mean, it, it, it feels like a relatively speaking crowded playoff picture. I just wonder if you if you take the Rams out of it, just because we just talked about them, who is the team that emerges from Packers, Cowboys and Buccaneers as the next best team, you think? Well, I still actually put the Buccaneers ahead of the Rams, I think. Okay. I think they're at the very least on the same level. Um, I would say I think that top tier is Tampa Bay, Green Bay, and, and Los Angeles and Arizona right now. Um, 
I don't know about the Cardinals sustaining this, but they sure do have the talent. Uh, it's just a question of if you know if if Kyler Murray can can truly maintain this in his third season, and if Cliff Kingsbury can do the same, and if they have the defensive prowess. So they they don't have the same level of talent defensively as um, as Tampa Bay or. Uh, the Rams um, certainly they do as much of Green Bay generally speaking um, you know the, the Packers it's all about if where and Rodgers brings them the Buccaneers not so much with Tom Brady of course he is you know the bread and butter and he's you know the, the most accomplished player in the history of the league but they have such a deep team compared to Green Bay the Rams and even the Cardinals um, who I would put number two in that that respect in terms of depth the uh, roster depth in those uh, that top tier of NFC teams but the Bucks, I mean like Look at that Super Bowl roster from last year. Everybody coming back, and they have so many options in the receiving game and the passing game, and they have such a solid offensive line with a mix of of youth and experience and and uh, and just raw talent. And and of course, we know that the weapons they have in the defensive front seven. They've gone through a lot of injuries in the secondary, but nobody really out long term by the look of it. They should have everybody back and ready to go by the time you know November December rolls around. So I still think the defending Super Bowl champs should be considered the top team. Um, they have. The just such a uh, one through 53 stronger makeup than I think the Rams do. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would say it's Bucks, Rams, Packers, I suppose, over Cardinals. Cardinals are a better overall team. We're still talking to defending a, 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 the reigning MVP and Aaron Rodgers. I'd probably put them third, and then you got Arizona before, as you mentioned, you drop down to sort of that next level after that. And it's a it's kind of a free-for-all before between whoever gets out of the NFC East and, and Carolina and whoever survives the rest of the NFC West, whether it's Seattle or San Francisco, and then maybe maybe even the Minnesota Vikings, the Chicago Bears in the North, depending on what happens, with, particularly with Justin Fields and the Bears. Chatting with Brad Gagnon, national NFL writer from Bleacher Report. You know, when it comes to the NFC East, I, you mentioned the Cowboys. They're 4-1. Washington is 2-3, is and three, I believe. The Eagles are 2-4 and four after uh, Thursday night, and the Giants are 1-4. I just I, – do you think – I mean, I know we're, we're – it's just the beginning of week six, so there's a lot of season left, certainly, right? And anything can happen yeah. over the course of I, – I guess it's what, like 11, 11 weeks, 11, 12 weeks remaining uh, – 11, 12 games, I should say, remaining um, with bye weeks still to come for a lot of these guys. But Cowboys at 4-1, and one, I just – do you think that's – enough to for them to stay ahead of other teams like the Eagles, the Washington football team and the Giants? Or do you think there's still some some, you know, craziness that could happen in, a, in an NFC East that I guess historically has seen a lot of their fair share of craziness, I suppose? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that division just you can't trust that division. You can't trust anybody in that division. So, you know, I've learned my lesson with the Cowboys. I, I question whether they can keep this up at this pace. And, and you know, I, I love Washington's defense. I can't believe how horribly it's played this season. But you got to imagine with that level of talent up front that, you know, guys like Chase Young and Jonathan Allen and Montez Sweat are, are just going to start producing it, to, you know, at a level where they're going to go on a big run at some point. I, that happened last year to them. I could see it happening again this year. Um, you know, there are still questions on the offensive side of the ball there. Just think there are questions on both sides of the ball for the Giants, but if they're rolling on those all cylinders, you never know. And and certainly that's the case uh, um, with Philadelphia. But, you know, I, I think it's probably safe to say the Eagles and Giants, this isn't their year. Like, there is more about 2022, maybe for Philly, finding out if Jalen Hurts is the guy, especially, you know, that Zach Ertz trade sort of felt like a bit of a, a white flag. And, um, you know, to an extent, that's also the case with the Giants, where they're off to a poor start again. 
Uh, they're ravaged by injuries. I think they still want to make this about trying to win a bad division this year and at least sneak into the playoffs and, and give fans something to be excited about there. And, and we want to see progress from Daniel Jones, which is there's been some, not as many, as much as people would hope, but there's been some. But the real competition there is Washington. I, I do think the – I was going to say the, the name of the team that uh, you think after two years we'd stop saying it. Yeah, I right. think the WFT has the ability to um, – to really uh, uh, push Dallas still, and and um, they haven't played yet. Have they played yet? I'm off the top of my head. I don't think they have. I don't think they have. So yeah, they have I don't think so. Two more matchups with them, and uh, again, I just I like Dak. I don't. I'm not. I don't think Dak is like 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 a Aaron Rodgers level dominant quarterback. Uh, I the, I like the offensive line, but it's not what it used to be. I like Zeke Elliott, but he's not who he used to be. Um, and the defense still has a lot of question marks. Like uh, Trayvon Diggs is not going to intercept 25 passes this season in spite of his pace, and so eventually things are going to come back to earth with that D, which has never been particularly good. I think they've been playing well above their, their heads, well over their heads thus far this season. So they're going to run into a stumbling block or two. They always seem to. I kind of wonder if it might be this week. Uh, I'm kind of trending against them in terms of picking them this week and wonder if maybe they're due for a, a tough performance, whereas I think Washington still has room to, to bounce back there. It always happens, right? It always comes down to like week 17 or in this case week 18. Yeah, a play-in game between Washington and Dallas for like the last wild card spot or, or yeah. seeding or something like that. Yeah, it definitely does seem to be uh, happening more often than not in the NFC than, than anywhere else. Um, you know, you mentioned Jalen Hurts as we're talking about the NFC East, and you said that you feel that he he still is or could be the guy in Philly, and they're they're definitely I think on their way to giving him more um, more support over the next couple of years. And you know, I think he has proven. I think he, he struggled at times, but he has proven that he I think he belongs in the NFL. Um, and then we talked about the. Giants is Daniel Jones the guy I wonder I just I go back and forth on whether or not I think Jones is going to be the um the QB of the future beyond I don't know I, maybe even next season when it comes to the the New York Giants yeah no I think I think that's that's just safe to say like in the NFL these days it's three and out right it's it's you, you don't you don't usually get a fourth season as a quarterback um if you uh, don't succeed in those first three out sometimes you don't even get a third season and in, in Josh Rosen's case you didn't even get a second season so um the the uh, bar is higher than ever. The leash is shorter than ever. However, you, whatever cliche you want to use, but um, you know, I, I don't think in New York of all places, when you look at a guy who's got Saquon Barkley, Kenny Galladay, um, you know, a, a breadth of great receivers actually there this season. I know they haven't always been healthy, and, and Barkley hasn't been 100% either. But he's got guys to work with now. Um, the excuses are not as strong as they would have been in year one or year two, especially without Barkley in year two for him. Um, and, and you know, you throw a COVID. 19 last year kind of derails your first full off season in the league well that was also the case with Kyler Murray and it's not bringing him down so you can't totally use that but sure we wanted to throw that in there throw that in there but all the excuses don't add up enough to save it save Daniel Jones for a year four if he puts up numbers that are similar to his first two seasons so far that hasn't been the case his rate-based statistics are actually pretty encouraging he's, he's been connecting on a lot of deep balls he makes a huge impact with his legs um, you know factors that you know we don't necessarily consider or necessarily see just in the box score when the Giants have a another tough day they're hurt now they're banged up once again maybe more than ever uh, in terms of uh, the, the guys surrounding him that's a factor he's gonna have to get past that great quarterbacks do they find a way to succeed despite the fact they don't have uh, a totally healthy receiving core or a strong offensive line and we've seen that historically with the you know the best quarterbacks in this league and when you're drafted as high as he was you're, you're expected to eventually sorry get to that point and he hasn't yet um, I have some faith. I, 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 again, I see him perform sometimes like, yeah, this guy's got it. Right. And then you see a silly turnover. Well, I, the interceptions haven't been a problem this season. The fumble is not as much as in past season. The turnovers aren't an issue yet. 
We're waiting for that to happen. If it doesn't happen, that's one thing. But he, that, that, that alone won't do the job. He also has to probably win them some games with his arm, with his legs. He has to become heroic, at least on a few glimpses, so that we know that there's a chance for year four and year five to make sense for him with the Giants. Chatting with Brad Gagnon from Bleacher Report. Um, you know, I, I want to turn our focus a little bit to the AFC. And, you know, I just, as much as I asked you, is are, are, are Jalen Hurts and uh, Daniel Jones the QBs of the future for their respective teams? Well, I, I wonder where you fall on someone like Baker Mayfield, right? I feel like there's been a lot of, I guess, I, I don't know what the right word is, maybe maybe discourse, let's say, Brad, on social media about Baker Mayfield this past week, especially after uh, a, a very close loss to the Los Angeles Chargers and Justin Herbert, who has been phenomenal this season. But Baker Mayfield as the uh, QB of the future for the Browns, I mean, this is the year they kind of have to make the decision on him. He's probably going to be due for a very large contract if the Browns do decide to keep him going forward I just I wonder what your thoughts are on Baker because I I go back and forth myself as to whether or not I think he is the kind of QB that can elevate an offense I mean I know that we don't always especially if with the way the Browns are constructed with the defense and the and the run game you may not need that but I just wonder if he can do it if asked of him Oh, that's that's definitely you know remains to be seen. Uh, his rate-based numbers to talk about the numbers that he said were, were rather surprising for Daniel Jones. He's been good in, for example, the fourth quarter of one-score games. Um, has been good on third down. Has been good uh, on passes that are uh, travel 15 plus yards down the field. Like those those numbers that we don't see uh, bl- bluntly anyway in the box score. Um, you know, they, they haven't been there for Baker this year, like even more so than in previous seasons. And it's pretty discouraging, right? I mean, I know he hasn't had Jarvis Landry and o- Odell Beckham Jr. missed the cup first couple of weeks and he's coming off a major injury as well, but they still have maybe the best offensive line in the game. And yeah, they're run first. They don't need him to be a superhero, but the fact that they are run oriented as they are means that a lot of pressure should be taken off of Baker Mayfield. And the fact that he's not putting up these even decent numbers in, in key categories, despite the fact that that pressure is off of him is really concerning. Um, so, you know, this, this looks so much like a sophomore slump season. It's the kind of season that I would have expected to see from him last year after, again, a COVID-19 derailed off season and a brand new head coach offensive system coming in with Kevin Stefanski. Like this was supposed to be Baker Mayfield in 2020. There's no excuse for this to be the case in 2021 when you've had a full off season under Kevin Stefanski and, and you're getting Beckham back and you've got the loaded offensive line. You've got more defensive support, although that hasn't been perfect for them either. So the fact that it hasn't come together in spite of all that in year three, I mean, that's enough to make you uh, rather concerned about what he can bring to the table going forward. He, he's got a lot to prove in the next few weeks or a few weeks, few months, but even few weeks because, like there won't be a, a lot, a lot of patience with him. They, this roster has been built to compete for the Super Bowl right now, and they can't possibly afford to have this level of play from him for the next couple of seasons. Otherwise, it all go down the drain. Uh, Brad, before I let you go, I just I, since we've been talking a lot about QBs today, I, I do want to ask you about uh, Mac Jones with the Patriots, the team that uh, Dallas is playing this week, and they have a pretty good defense. Uh, and Mac Jones himself. I mean, I, it's crazy to think that he looks like, maybe not crazy, but it just it fascinates me to think that he uh, looks the most NFL-ready of the 2021 QB draft picks, right? Like maybe Trey Lance, Justin Fields, and Zach Wilson catch up considering their situations, it's possible. But I mean, I have been very impressed with Jones considering all the tul- the other, I guess, tumult that the Patriots have been going through when it comes to injuries and COVID and all that stuff across the offensive line and with their running backs this year. Yeah, it's been encouraging. He, you know, he's, he hasn't been asked to do a lot. You know, he's, he's been babied a little bit in that offense, and, and, and he's not taking a lot of shots downfield, uh, very, very low uh, air yards uh, or completed air yards per attempt number. Um, so he's not, he's not getting the ball down the field. He's not going to carry them when they're in a close game or in a, in a big situation where they need him to really 
uh, get the ball deep. But, you know, that, that's the case with a lot of rookie quarterbacks. Not necessarily an indictment on him. It just means they're taking it slowly, which is to be expected. And, um, and, and I, I, you know, he has the tools to start to make those plays, and I expect those to come around. So it's been promising for sure. The fact is he's been one of the most accurate passers in the entire league so far. He's, he's top five in terms of uh, accuracy rate and pro football reference. He's got a 70-plus percent uh, completion percentage. So, I mean, you, you can't ask for much more from the guy. And you can only really expect him to make the throws you're giving him in the playbook, and, and he has been making them so far. So, yeah, it's promising. I mentioned I wouldn't be surprised at all if they beat the, beat the Pate or the Cowboys this week. Yeah, I would. I think that would be a that would be a huge upset for people's I think survivor pools. Let's put it that way, Brad. But I think uh, it'll be an exciting game nonetheless, and an exciting rest of Week Six this weekend. Really appreciate you taking some time for me here on a Saturday afternoon. Enjoy the games, and we'll do this again soon later this year. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. There he goes. Brad Gagnon, national NFL writer for Bleacher Report. Brad is always, uh, like I said, always very generous with his time whenever he pops on uh, Sportsnet Today, Sportsnet Tonight's here across the Sportsnet radio network. Yeah, the Patriots-Cowboys uh, game is a fascinating one. That's going to be a really fun one to watch. I think that's one of the 4 o'clock games, if I'm not mistaken, the 425 game. I don't know when the Patriots' bye week is, but much like the Bills and Heather said, the Bills have their... Uh, their bye week uh, next week. The uh, Cowboys also have their bye week next week. So uh, it'll be really interesting to see if they deploy any offensive or defensive starters a little differently because the Cowboys' defense, generally speaking this season, has been fine, I would say. They've been fine. Trevon Diggs has been stellar. He's been amazing. Probably going to win some kind of award at some point this season. Probably is in the conversation for Defensive Player of the Year, much less Defensive Rookie of the Year, right, in the uh, in the NFC. But I, I do think when it comes to the rest of that Cowboys defense, they're okay. They're okay. And I do think the Cowboys have had a relatively forgiving schedule so far. Now, on the other side of things, can the... New England Patriots, can Mac Jones and his offensive weapons that are guys like Nelson Aguilar and Jacoby Myers and Kendrick Bourne and Hunter Henry and Jonathan Smith, can they keep up with offensive weapons like CeeDee Lamb and Amari Cooper and Dalton Schultz and Blake Jarwin? I think there remains to be seen, right? I mean, they, they struggled basically last week against Davis Mills and the Houston Texans. Davis Mills carved the Patriots' defense like a turkey. It was awful last week. They did awful, horrible things to the Patriots' defense. And you know what? The Patriots' defense came together in the second half, and they eventually won that game. Yes, that is true. But to see them struggle against the Houston Texans, I don't know. I don't think this, this might just be uh, the obvious alarm here going off, but it does feel kind of like does not bode great, bode very well for uh, a matchup against a high-powered offense. Because Dak Prescott, uh, I think it's, it's safe to say this may be the uh, maybe the most obvious thing I've ever said on this program. Dak Prescott is better than Davis Mills. He is better than Davis Mills. I'll, on, a, on a quick, on a completely unrelated note, um, Davis Mills getting the start and looking NFL competent at the very least after once again Tyrod Taylor going out with injury. I feel kind of bad for Tyrod Taylor, right? He is. I feel like that that happened to Tyrod with Baker Mayfield. I believe that was a game against the Jets last year. It happened with Tyrod and getting a, a needle to the lung. When he was the Chargers backup or Chargers starter, and then Justin Herbert came in and impressed right away, and now it happens again with the Houston Texans. Boy, I, I don't. Wherever Tyrod Taylor ends up next year, if he's not a Houston Texan, whoever the backup is, better be prepared to have some 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 starting snaps at some point. Let's put it that way. But uh, that kind of concludes our NFL hour here on Sportsnet today. Again, Week Six continues tomorrow. Um, we'll have the Fantasy Show with Andy McNamara and myself from eight to ten Eastern here on the Sportsnet Radio Network and inside the lines with George Russick, uh, David Bastel, and Stephen Rapp will follow the fantasy show 
And a good way to start your Sunday morning, I think, for fantasy and gambling. But that's tomorrow. For the rest of today's program, we do have one more hour to go on Sportsnet today. We have uh, Iman Adon. She is the uh, Dishes and Dimes co-host of the the popular Raptors podcast. We'll chat the Raptors as their season and cra- crazily enough, I can't believe it feels like the NBA offseason is the shortest offseason of all four major sports. But the uh, NBA returns this coming week. The Raptors are playing on Wednesday at home against the Washington Wizards. So we'll chat with uh, Amon about Scotty Barnes and the roles of guys like Gary Trent Jr. and Goran Dragic in terms of where they start and who's, who's coming off the bench when it comes to the shooting guard situation. And we'll also chat with Guts Casaros, who is going to join us from McKean's Hockey to get us set one more time for Leafs Sends. And of course, Leafs Nation pregame follows this program at 6 p.m. But that's coming up in the final hour of Sportsnet today. I'm Show Ali. You can text us at 590-590. Sportsnet today continues after this across the Sportsnet Radio Network. It all happens in real time. Don't be the last to know. Listen here first. Sportsnet today on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. back to Sportsnet today across the Sportsnet radio network show Ali with you for another hours the final hour of the program as after which point we will make way for Leafs Nation pregame with Brent Gunning and Gord Stellick the Leafs and Sens will be going right here on the uh, Sportsnet radio network and of course right here on our flagship station Sportsnet 590 the fan at 7 p.m. Joe Bone and Jim Ralph everyone will be down at Scotiabank Arena tonight to it for uh, game three of the season, Jack Campbell will be in net for the Toronto Maple Leafs. But right now, we are going to shift our focus to the hard court as the uh, Toronto Raptors will make their return to Toronto. I guess they're already back in Toronto, but they will make their return in front of fans at Scotiabank Arena on Wednesday as they will take on the Washington Wizards to kick off the 2021 22 season and joining me right now to chat about it is Amon Adon, host of Morning Tip Off and co-host of the Terrific Dishes and Dimes podcast. And Amon, uh, good to hear your voice again. Good to catch up with you. Uh, how is the off season treating you? Are you recovered from Kyle Lowry no longer being a Toronto Raptor? Oh my gosh, I forgot it hurts all over again. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a lot. It's been really exciting watching a new fan base fall in love with him. I honestly have come up with this idea where I think he should play for every team just so everyone gets to experience the Kyle Lowry love like we got to for, for seven years or nine years. Are, are you excited then for the uh, the Twitter discourse, let's say, the social media discourse for when Miami Heat fans say, wow, Kyle Lowry is good? Who knew? It's going to happen. You know it's going to happen at this point. Oh, it's already been happening. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have a lot of friends in Miami media, so I've been fortunate enough to join them. And they're trolling. I know parts of it are jokes, but us Raptor fans are sensitive about our Kyle Lowry. Um, and, you know, I just keep reminding them he's a six-time all-star for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Kyle Lowry is, uh, is is going to be beloved in Toronto for the rest of his career. And uh, when, when he ine- inevitably gets inducted into the Hall of Fame, I, I look forward for these uh, these conversations to come back up. All right, but let's talk about the uh, this iteration, let's call it, of the Toronto Raptors. Um, do you think we can pencil OG Ananobi in for an all-star spot now? Or what do you think? We have to wait a couple weeks on that or before we uh, pull the trigger? What do you think? Are we being shy? Are we not penciling him in for an MVP spot already? <laughs> um, I'm getting. Um, honestly, All-Star, All-Star seems very, very high, but he will have that time with Pascal Siakam out of the lineup. It'll kind of give him his emergence. I was comparing it 
in, in a very sort of slight uh, way to that Danny Granger, Paul George situation that Indiana had a few years ago now, hopefully. It doesn't end in the same way that it did for the Pacers where they traded away their Danny Granger. But that's where we saw Paul George have his most improved player season. Um, because he was given more touches, more looks, and had the ball a lot more. And I think we'll see something very similar for OJ and be being featured um, as a main part of this offense. It does kind of feel like this entire team, and I, I do want to ask you about Scotty Barnes in a second, but it does feel like the entire team, especially when Pascal does return from, from the injury, the surgery, and so on, and, and I think that's, from, from what we can see on, on uh, the various insiders, it certainly looks like Pascal will be back sooner than expected, and it still, still may not be for a number of weeks, maybe even a month, but sooner than expected for him. But when he does come back, this team, it's basically a team full of wings, it feels like, right? Like, not a lot of... Uh, front court, uh, like giant people depth, let's say, right? And I think you, you saw a little bit of that in terms of how the team struggled against team, guys like, uh, I don't know, Andre Drummond or Joel Embiid during the preseason, two massive human beings. And I expect that to be something we, we talk about over the course of this entire season, unless something major has changed. But by and large, I am looking forward to this this wing-heavy team and, and the idea of positionless basketball, because that's going to be a term I bet we use a lot this year, Amon, uh, positionless basketball. Yeah, the Messiah Jury took position is basketball and pushed it to a, to a level we just have not seen in the NBA as of right now. The Raptors are strange because they're big, but they're still very small. <laughs> they have a lot of 6'8", six, 6'9", six, guys, um, and most other teams are, like, most often the Raptors are going to have a mismatch where one of their wings is bigger than another team is because they can throw out so many 6'8", six, 6'9", six, guys. However, when going up against teams that have a Joel Embiid or have a Nikola Jokic, they're going to show how small they truly are. The benefit for the Raptors are that there aren't very many of those teams in the NBA. The Sixers are going to be a particularly bad matchup, but looking across the board, we're not going to find very many of those. And as we saw last year, Ochananobi is really strong, and he did a solid job on a lot of those centers, the MVP, Nikola Jokic included. Yeah, that, that is true. We're chatting with uh, Amana Don, host of Morning Tip-Off and co-host of Dishes and Dimes, um, which you can find wherever you grab your podcasts. And, you know, Amon, I, you know, I, I look at the rest of it, at the very least, the division. I mean, we don't, you never know what's going to happen when it comes to the Sixers. Like you said, probably not the great, greatest matchup. But I, when you look at the, the matchups that are going to be coming inevitably against the Boston Celtics, I mean, they still have very good players, obviously, um, you know, Tatum and, and Smart and Brown and all those guys we have come to know over the past couple of seasons. But I actually feel like the way this team is constructed, I would take the Raptors' chances over a team like the Boston Celtics just because of their relative height, their length, and their speed as well. Yeah, the Raptors are going to be very disruptive, especially for teams that are wing-heavy, like the this, like this Celtics specifically, um, because of the size that they have there. The Raptors play a very aggressive style of defense, and they just have the limbs flying everywhere because it seems like everyone has seven feet long wingspan. Um, so it's going to be very disruptive for teams like that, and we've seen that in the past before. Um, so it'll be really exciting to see the Raptors and the Celtics face off this year because Celtics have a lot of questions going into this year, just like the Raptors do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a really fascinating year within the division and and certainly within the Eastern Conference. Now, okay, so I want to ask you about Scotty Barnes, and of course, Scotty Barnes 
uh, is is the the topic du jour basically every day of the offseason because of the high draft status, the the unexpected nature perhaps of him of Jalen Suggs being taken after him, right? I think everything to do with Scotty Barnes fascinates me, Amon. And I just I wonder what you've seen from his progression over the course of I guess summer league, um, which you guys were at for Dishes and Dimes, and then of course uh, during the preseason as well. What have you seen from his development in certainly a very small sample size, a very short period of time? But I still what what should fans be excited about when they uh, see Scotty Barnes in the regular season opener on Wednesday? Small sample size, but honestly, I've been impressed at every single turn. Scotty's size, his length, his speed, his ball handling is a lot more advanced than I thought it would be. His playmaking and his court vision, just to see him out on the run. When the Raptors are, are at their best, they're out and running in transition. And Scotty Barnes has shown that he has the ability to handle the ball. He has the ability to leak out very quickly, like we saw Siakam do uh, in his early um, in his early seasons. Uh, he's just so versatile. That shooting still hasn't come yet. That scoring touch will develop. But his playmaking, his ball handling, his speed, his size, his length um, is something to be really excited about as Raptor fans. And another thing that's truly surprised me is how strong he is, which is something that we don't say all the time about rookies. Um, but he is strong and he's fearless um, and just such an exciting player. I think he's going to become a fan favorite so fast if he's not already. You know, that actually brings up a good question because I, I you know, people – People in this city, no matter what team you you cheer for in terms of sport, right? Like whether you cheer for the Raptors or the Leafs or the Blue Jays or or whatever, I feel like there's always a couple of fan favorites that are like the the gritty fan favorites that are not the stars, right? Like for example, I feel like Grievous Vasquez was that guy in years past, and PJ Tucker was a guy for a very 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 short period of time. But there and there have been a lot of fan favorites over the course of the last decade. If if we could exclude the starting lineup, okay? So I guess let's just put Scotty aside and put Fred Van Vliet aside and put OG Ananobi and Pascal aside. Who's who's someone that is likely to come off the bench that you think will really resonate with fans based on what you've seen, uh, I guess, during Summer League in the preseason? I, for one, that question is really hard because what is this after starting lineup? I think we're going to see That's so many too. different looks. Um, I I think the one, one thing that the Raptors do have just across the board are a lot of guys that are kind of Swiss Army Knights, which is something that we really like here. We also like really sort of blue-collar gray guys as well. Um, I would say that Z and Utah Watanabe, Utah Watanabe, of course, was a favorite last year. I think he's going to continue to be. Unfortunately, we haven't gotten to see enough of him Um in the in the preseason because of an injury and he's still not a guaranteed contract we don't know if he'll be here but nick nurse has kind of said that he wants him to be on the team my belief is he's going to be on the team as well um so i think utah watanabe is going to continue that and i think steve mihailuk um is someone that fans are going to take to really really quickly as well the team needs shooting so a guy that can do that something that fans are going to really celebrate yeah i think i oh, think and of course malachi flynn i mean oh, there's yes. so many there's so many do you think, you know, on, on Malachi Flynn, I'm chatting with Iman Adon, uh, co-host of the Morning Tip-Off and co-host of the uh, the Dishes and Dime podcast. On Flynn, why do you think we haven't seen him play as much as maybe expected after? Because I thought he was very good in Summer League. And then in the preseason, he kind of just disappeared. And I don't know if that was, like, if he was in the, the doghouse with Nick Nurse or they just wanted to see different lineups. And like you said, I'm, sh- I'm sure with the just sheer amount of starting lineups we will see between now and the end of the season, I'm sure he'll get time. I just was a little surprised that we didn't actually see as much Malachi Flynn as I maybe would have expected to uh, going into game one of the regular season. 
Yeah, I was thoroughly impressed with him in, in summer league. Uh, preseason has been a little bit rougher for him. I, I do think it's a little bit of both of what you said. Um, he hasn't played, I think, up to where um, you know most fans would have expected, especially considering his start in summer league. But I, I would say it's probably that we kind of know what his role is going to be. Whereas Nick Nurse is really trying to find everyone else's role, trying to find who that last um, cut is going to be for the Raptors. Uh, unfortunately, right now, there's got to be someone. Um, but also, I think I think Malachi is one of the rare guys where we know exactly what his role is going to be. We know who he's going to be. He's going to be running that second lineup. Um, and we're really still trying to figure out everyone else's role and see what they look like because this is a very new team. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's it's so interesting to me that we are in the era of Raptors basketball that we are because the championship. What I mean, I know that I know like time is a flat circle, Amon, and that it has basically the yeah. pandemic has basically made everything feel like it's so much longer ago. But 2019 wasn't that long ago, and it, it wasn't that long ago that we were all celebrating a Raptors championship, and it was a lot of fun here in the city. But it's just crazy, and I know this is just the nature of sports, not just basketball. It's just crazy that we have moved so quickly to the next era and it certainly was precipitated by Lowry moving on and other guys moving on as well but it just it, it honestly is shocking to me that we have changed like the identity maybe a better way of saying it the identity of this team has changed so dramatically that it, it, it almost feels like and I know guys like OG and Pascal and Fred Van Vliet who we haven't talked about yet but guys like that are still on this team and they are the core like we knew they would be but the, everyone else has changed so dramatically that it, it feels like a vastly different team even with the, you know, and maybe that's just, uh, maybe the idea of that is also tied into the fact that the Raptors just haven't been in Toronto physically because of the pandemic. Yeah, no, there, and there's just, there's been so much basketball that's happened there. It, it honestly surprises me every time that I remember the bubble was only a year ago. Um, because you think about like, it feels like two NBA seasons have happened since then. Uh, we went from a team that had at that point, Mark Soul and Serge Ibaka. We knew who the starters were. We knew what that team looked like. We knew to expect everything. And right now there's just so many questions because Kyle Lowry, Mark Soul, Serge Ibaka are all gone. And the team has just shifted so young um but that's really exciting like i'm excited for this next iteration of the raptors very sad to see kyle lowry go but i've always said i don't think we got to i don't think we would ever get to the next iteration of the raptors as long as kyle was on this team he is the heart or he was the heartbeat of this team he was their leader and um even if he didn't play very many minutes even if he was benched for that second half of the season as long as he was on the roster, the team would look like him on the court and I think would play after him. And this is the first year where we get to see Fred Van Vliet, OG Ananobi, and Pascal Siakam have a keys. And that's very exciting as a Raptors fan. Well, you know, one guy who was a was a direct is is now a Raptor directly as a result of the Kyle Lowry trade was, of course, Goran Dragic. And Dragic is interesting because we have seen him do some pretty crazy things against the Raptors as a member of the Miami Heat for maybe even when he was with the Suns, too. I feel like for years and years and years. And uh, Gary Trent Jr., the other shooting guard. I just I wonder if you had to guess. I know I know the starting lineup for opening day is not set in stone whatsoever. But if we had to rub the crystal ball here a little bit, Amon, I wonder, who do you think between Trent Jr. and Dragic will be the team's um, opening day uh, shooting guard? I think it'll probably be Goron to start uh, the season, but I do think that that's going to be Gary Trent Jr.'s role and position moving forward. I think he fits in better with the starters um, as someone who can just 
cut a little bit more. He's younger. I think he'll fit in better defensively with the team as well. He's a great shooter. And I kind of see him very much in that sort of Norman Powell role, where I would like to see a guy like Goran Dragic, um, a, a veteran presence to lead that bench unit. The Raptors had bench mob three seasons ago at this point where you had that Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Vliet uh, coming off the bench. It was really fun with the C.J. Miles team. And I kind of look at this version of the Raptors as having a very similar bench. And I think having Goron there with Malachi to help run those bench lineups is going to be something that's um, that'll be really fun and exciting. I do, however, think that Goron's probably going to start there um, as a starter, but I do think his role will be with the bench guys. I think he fits in better with the bench players. Um, and I think that um, Gary Trent Jr. fits in better with the starters there. Um, before I let you go, um, and again, I appreciate you being very generous with your time for me this afternoon. Um, before I let you go, a quick prediction on where you think the Raptors will fall in the Eastern Conference this year. Because the, the Eastern Conference, generally speaking, has been has been changed a decent amount. I mean, we all know how basketball players, when they move around in free agency and in the offseason, generally speaking, it can change the, the balance. And, you know, will the, will the Nets be as good, right? Likely no Kyrie Irving there. Um, will the will the 76ers keep it up? Embiid had an injury last year, which which ultimately uh, hampered them down the stretch, especially in the playoffs. I just, I'm curious where you think the Raptors spot in the Eastern Conference. Will it be, let's say, the play-in game, the play-in tournament? Will it be above that? Will it be out of the playoffs entirely? Where do you fall on the Raptors uh, postseason? or end-of-year uh, rankings when it's all said and done? I've been wanting this for a little bit, and your your colleague Alex Wong is with me on this. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I would love to see the Raptors as a six-seed to go up against the Miami Heat as a three-seed. Oh, Does that kind of feel a little bit like a fever dream and not something that's going to ever happen? Yes. Um, but that is my wishful thinking coming in uh, to play there. Realistically, I think they're a playing team. I think they're somewhere in that 7-10 to 10 range. Um and yeah, I think they're. I think they're realistically they're going to be in that seven to ten range. What I'm wishing for, what I have my fingers crossed for, is that sixty to see us go up against the Miami Heat in the first round of the playoffs. Yeah, boy, the, we we started this conversation <laughs> chatting about Kyle Lowry in the Twitter discourse. Boy, seeing Kyle Lowry go up against, let's say, Fred VanVleet in the first round of the NBA playoffs would be uh, <laughs> something. It would be a sight to behold, Amon. But I think uh, I'm with you. I'm with I'm with you on the six to eight seed range. That'll be a lot of fun. But again, the Raptors season kicks off, gets going on Wednesday against the Washington Wizards. I'm chatting with Amon Adon, co-host of the Morning Tip Off and of the Dishes and Dimes podcast. Amon, always fun catching up with you. Enjoy the rest of the, or enjoy the beginning of the regular season, and I'm sure we'll do this again soon. Sounds good. Thank you so much. There she goes. Amon Adon from Dishes and Dimes. And yeah, it's it's been a, it's been an interesting off season for the Toronto Raptors, to say the least, because like I said, the entire identity of this team has been essentially completely remade. And now, you know what? I want to bring on, uh, for a couple of minutes here before we hit our break, uh, our producer of today's program, J.R. Manitad, who always does a terrific job. And uh, J.R., before we talk any Raptors, I just wanted to say on the air, I wanted to congratulate you because J.R. is now going to be our Raptors game day producer for uh, Raptors games that are broadcast right here on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. So, uh, J.R., you've done a lot of really great work, so I just want to say congratulations. Uh, thanks, Joe. I really, really appreciate it. I've learned a lot from my past in, uh, during some Leafs Nation post-game shows sure. and also some Jays talks. So something that we're trying to do with the Raptors games, we're trying to, um, you know, translate what we've done with callers and you know, post-game coverage with the Jays and the Leafs. I'm sure we, we've done Raptors games in the past, but something uh, that we can push for with Will Lou. And it's, it's going to be very exciting that we have um, 
nice little coverage on our station every after every Raptor game, whether we have the game or not on our station. So very excited to have that. Yeah, there you go. Oh, thanks. Oh, <laughs> thanks, guys. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, too kind. Too kind. Yeah, too we, kind. the audience <laughs> loves you, Jr. They love you. Yes. yes. <laughs> so I, I, I got to ask you, what do you what do you think of Amon's uh, Amon's prediction that the Raptors will be in for let's let's say that if not the six seed, the yeah, six yeah. to eight seed, let's say. Yeah, I, I think I think six would would be a little bit too high on my on my books. I was projecting them to be a lower seven to even nine. I mean, I'm sure that's that's not far far from our six seed sure. prediction. But even if a play in pre, uh, play prediction would be okay with this team, just because of how this team is looking on paper, um, I mean they've they've uh, proven us wrong in the past. But we have a pretty much a lot of new faces on this team, and it's very exciting that we have so many storylines to follow. That we have so many young guys coming from the draft um so many young guys like malachi flynn in their second year who are trying to trying to see if they can prove themselves to be on the roster again for their second year in the in a row um and obviously we have uh the new the new transitional faces of pascal siak and febben vliet og and nobi who are who have been on the team for a while and it's their time to shine in the next uh few years or so, or so and, and during the season for, for sure so I, I believe on this on like on paper this team is a, probably a lower seeded team if they do make the play and for playoffs um but they've uh, they've done they've proven us wrong in the past and I'm, I'm i'll be i'm pretty excited to see what they what this team has uh got in in, in their books so let me ask you this then jr i i asked the same question to iman yeah about uh you know like the the gritty sandpaper type guy who's going to come off the bench and win the win the hearts of raptors fans right <laughs> like we all we all know that like all teams the leafs are playing later tonight we all know pierre engvall looks like he could be that guy or wayne simmons yeah, looked like yeah. he could be that guy for the leafs yeah. you look at the, uh, the, the 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 toronto um toronto blue jays uh, santiago espinal and bravik valera were probably that guy for reese mcguire was probably that guy to a degree at some points this year i would say it was largely espinal um but uh -huh. when, it, when it comes to the raptors let's put aside scotty Barnes. I think Scotty Barnes is absolutely yeah, going to be a fan I agree. favorite. I agree. Uh, yeah, one hundred percent. But let's put aside Scotty for a second. Let's put aside Pascal Siakam. Let's put aside OG and Fred Van Vliet. So, of the, without those four guys in this conversation, who do you think is going to emerge uh, and, and be someone who wins the hearts of Raptors Nation? Wait, wait did you say Delano Banton is included in that pack? <laughs> no. So you say you're thinking Banton will be a guy. I gotta give it to Banton. Mm -hmm. I, from a kid from Rexdale from Toronto, he has something to prove. I mean, and it's it's something about playing for a city, for your city. Uh, Corey Joseph has done it in the past. Um, Corey Joseph was kind of like uh, laid back a little bit, but I believe Delano Banton coming in first year rookie year, being the first uh, Toronto native to be drafted by his team. And I, after watching Open Gym uh, the other night and seeing the, his reaction to Masai Jury's call on, on FaceTime, his reaction when he's in, he's back at home, tour, uh, taking a tour around the sea that he he's been uh, uh, you know living in, and there was a moment uh, in, during that uh, episode where he was in front of um, the big bank, as I think the kids are going to be calling it nowadays. Okay. But he was at the big bank and talking about. I, yo, Scotty, I lined up here to watch a Raptors game, and look where I'm at now. I'm in the lo Raptors locker room. I'm, t I'm going to CN Towers with, uh, with, with you, with Scotty Barnes, taking a tour with the Raptors media squad. And I, I think this is going to be a good, a good um, time for him to show what he, he can prove. Um, I, I, he's done in the past. If you've, if true basketball fans in the city have seen his bio steal. Um, 
game a few years ago, mm -hmm. you can see how much he has, you know, grown in terms of, uh, of being a sh uh, shaped into a nice little a basketball player on, on defense and on offense. So I, I think he might be one of those gritty fan favorites comp next to Scotty Barnes, who obviously Scotty Barnes is already a fan favorite just because of how his personality. And, you know, he's always smiling. The, the guy is always smiling. Yeah, he is one. He that guy looks like he has a limitless battery. Honestly, like, I mean, it might, it, maybe it's just like youth right now, but he definitely yeah. he definitely looks like someone who is is going to be the uh, the energizer bunny out there. He even in the preseason routine, Scotty Barnes has been uh, doing the you know almost almost taking the role of Kyle Lowry essentially in those yes, pregame exactly. routines when they come out of the locker room and high fiving everyone and so on and laying down on the court and doing push ups and everything like that. So I think Scotty Barnes for sure. I like your pick of Delano Banton. Aman went with uh, Yuta Watanabe and. CD Mihailuk, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but uh, a lot of a lot of fascinating names on the uh, mm -hmm, bottom mm -hmm. or maybe the bench players will be coming off the bench over the course of this season. But JR, you uh, do a bang-up job uh, producing for me and producing for all of us here at the, at the fan. And of course, uh, again, best of luck with the uh, Raptors game day producing. And of course, the season gets started on Wednesday. Thank you, Show Appreciate it. All right, there he goes. Our producer, J.R. Manitad. His job is not done yet because we still got one more segment to go on this program, Sportsnet Today, across the Sportsnet radio network. When we come back, Gus Casaro's hockey analyst from McKean's Hockey, will get us set for Leafs and Sens. That's going to happen tonight on Hockey Night in Canada. Game is at 7 p.m. Eastern. Pre-game goes with Brent Gunning and Gord Stelic in about 30 minutes' time. But Gus Casaro's is next on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Sportsnet 590. Welcome back to Sportsnet Today across the Sportsnet Radio Network. This is the final segment of the program as in... Under 30 minutes, as I've been saying pretty much all afternoon, we're going to make way for Leafs Nation pregame. Brent Gunning and Gord Stellick will get you set for Leafs and Sens, which gets going on uh, on the Sportsnet Radio Network, on Sportsnet TV, and on the CBC at 7 p.m. But uh, quick update on the uh, Red Sox-Astros game. So if you're just tuning in to this baseball game now, it is, I believe, the bottom of the second inning now uh, as the Astros are going to come to the dish the Red Sox are leading eight nothing, eight nothing for the Red Sox, and here's how it's been, how, how it's gone so far. Very simple: JD Martinez grand slam off Luis Garcia in the first inning, and a Rafael Devers grand slam off Jake Odorizzi in the second inning. It is eight nothing for the Boston Red Sox in the Houston Astros, and there's still seven innings to go. Apparently, Luis Garcia did leave this game with an injury, uh, an un unspecified injury, it would seem, but he did leave this game with an injury. Um, uh, just a, a, I guess in the top of the second inning, Odorizzi came in and then promptly gave up a couple of singles and a walk, and here we go. Another grand slam for Rafael Devers, but... Uh, that game is on Sportsnet if you do want to watch the, the carnage there for Boston, who look at least right now, relatively speaking, likely to go back to Boston with a split as they have been doing uh, throughout this entire postseason. Like I said before, I'm done guessing what the Boston Red Sox will do. I'm done guessing.
But you know what? I uh, We have been doing a little bit of guessing as to what's been going on with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Some injuries early season that they've been dealing with. Justin Hall is injured and uh, Peter Morazic exiting the game on Thursday night against the Ottawa Senators with a groin injury. I believe he exited after the second period and Jack Campbell did come in. We're joined right now by Gus Katsaros, hockey analyst from McKean Sports. And uh, Gus, I, I want to say thank you for joining us on a Saturday afternoon. But boy, the, uh, the, the fact that the Leafs have to sign Alex Bishop on a PTO is, is just, I don't want to necessarily call it cap mismanagement, but it's definitely cap, you know, straining of the cap that led to this because they otherwise, I'm sure, would have simply liked to have called up, you know, Michael Hutchinson, let's say. Well, I, I thank you for having me on right off the bat. I just wanted to say that. Um, I think that this actually stems to way back into the offseason, and you can even go way back into when he said, we can and we will. Once that proclamation of getting all those big four guys signed to long-term deals and making sure that they can build a, a, a proper team around them so that they can be competitive, at least Stanley Cup contender competitive, um, you knew that there were going to be cap constraints. The math just seemed to work out that way. So we've kind of seen the progression towards that. There was some experimentation done last year. They tried to bring in other elements, and some worked, some didn't. The Joe Thornton failure uh, was just a, a minor blip in comparison to the Jason Spezza mega success uh, enough so that they actually brought him back. And then we see in this offseason where they had to go and sign some fringe players that will give them some kind of a benefit, but nothing substantive enough to fill some of the, um, I'm going to call them perceived gaps okay. um, that this roster has in order to really be competitive. So now we fast forward to today and we see that they have to do a little bit of cap gymnastics in order to be able to just be compliant. So, it's the beginning of the season, and I really don't want to uh, harp too much on, on specific mistakes right at the beginning, um, but it is a bit of a, a harbinger of something to come should they find themselves in situations throughout this season where they have to continuously do something like this. So to me, it just seems like they're going to have to move a body some way, somehow, in order to ensure that they can consistently be cap compliant and never find themselves in another situation like this throughout this season. Yeah, it certainly seems like, and again, I'm not, I don't want to, you know, say anything negative about Alex Bishop. I mean, the kid, the kid plays for the varsity blues. He's bounced around a bunch of the minor leagues and he's a, uh, apparently a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, a Markham native. So I, I, I do actually think it's pretty exciting for him, like as a, as a individual story, but from a larger picture, Alex Bishop having to be the backup goalie to Jack Campbell tonight against the Ottawa senators is a uh, not great. And no matter how you slice it, um, I do want to ask you about some of the, those new additions, those guys who have been added up and down the roster to uh, I guess fill holes like you said Joe Thornton was one attempt in the past Jason Spezza is someone who has been much more successful like you were saying Gus um, Nick Ritchie Michael Bunting Andre Kasha David Kampf like these are the guys who are the newest faces so to speak of the Toronto Maple Leafs here this year I want to ask you about Andre Kasha what if like I mean again I know it's a small sample size we're only going into game three later tonight what have you made of Kasha because he has always been that guy who it almost feels like he has been tabbed for a breakout when he was with the Ducks every year, and it like seemingly never came. I just wonder what you have made of Kasha through two games so far. So I, I go way, way back with Kasha, and I, I have zero issues with the Leafs trying to bring in a player of his um, capacity to address some of their issues. And this kind of really goes back into that mindset of just what is a good defensive player. Um, so here we have Kasha, who is an accomplished two-way player. He's smart enough offensively to be in the spots to create and support offensive 
um, forays, but at the same time responsible enough and structurally defensively mature to be able to jump back into uh, formations and, and be um, responsible on the back check and, and be in a proper position, et cetera, et cetera. So what I think he brings to the lineup is, like, I think the concept of defense is changing enough, and it's changing at such a rapid pace that we, we sometimes don't really understand what we're seeing when we see it. Kasha is one of those players that we're going to see as being a new age defensive player. So the least bringing him in, the only risk to bringing in a player like that was his health. Health has really derailed him from the Ducks all the way into his Boston days, um, and he's so far been great in the last couple of games. But I think that as long as he stays healthy, you're going to see a phenomenal defensive element that's going to be able to chip in offensively, even if the points don't necessarily match. It's just the ability for him to be in the right spots to maintain um uh, we'll call it offensive momentum. So he's good in all three zones to the degree that I have zero issues with the signing. Health is the biggest issue. So if he does go down, now how do you replace a player like that? So uh, th- this is kind of where, where I am with Kasha. As long as he's in the lineup, I'm perfectly good. As long as he's not in the lineup, how do you replace that? And it's going to be very difficult, I think, with the current roster to be able to fix a hole like that. So it's an interesting signing. I think that he'll be great throughout the regular season, health permitting. Chatting with Gus Casaros here from uh, McKean's Hockey. Yeah, I, I am looking forward to seeing what Kasha does as a whole. But again, like like we were saying, it's just we're only seeing the third game tonight. So I am looking forward to the the rest of the games in the season. And you know, we we were talking about Nick Ritchie and Bunching and and Camp and so on. In addition to Kasha, and I guess one common refrain, Gus, we have heard from this Maple Leaf squad over the past couple of years, and certainly after the collapse against Montreal last year, which I know no one wants to talk about, but still, after that, we've heard a lot of from the players, the, the management, that this team just has to continue to be tough to play against. They have to make themselves tougher to play against, whether it's through additions like like a new players or make the existing players doing new things. I just wonder, do you think the addition of Richie Bunting, Camp, and Kasha has made them, at least in the limited action we've seen so far, has made them, you know, quote-unquote, tougher to play against? Yeah, as long as they properly define what they're expecting by tougher to play against. Like, to me, that doesn't necessarily mean bringing in tough, gritty components. And and that is a a necessity on any team. Uh, But that's not what I think that they're getting at here. Being tough to play against is having the puck a lot. Um, Being tough to play against is not giving your opponents the opportunity to to implement their own power plays formations, um, to limit their special teams, be smart enough not to take stupid penalties and bad opportunities. And um, uh, a perfect prime example being smart enough not to throw the puck down the ice like Pierre Engvall did in the first game um, and afford the team the opportunity to perhaps tie up a one goal game those are things that make teams tough to play against so let's address the players that you just discussed to me I think what they did with Bunting and Richie was bring in two players that would essentially take over for what Zach Hyman was bringing in for Toronto Hyman was able to play on that top line and if there was a line that was struggling he was the guy that was going to be put onto that line to do some some kind of a spark between bunting and Richie. They have enough physicality and grit and enough offensive potential so that they can kind of interplay both those players, probably depending on opponent or tactical situation. So I think a prime optimal spot, we're going to see a lot of like, uh, like the pesky and pesky style of Michael bunting. I think that when Matthews does end up coming back, he has that left wing spot right on the first line. Um, but at the same time, I think that there should be a rotation uh, rotation there with Nick Richie, depending on the opponent, maybe size becomes a bigger, 
an issue. So anyway, you can make decisions based on that. So I think that's kind of what they've tried to do, bring in those two players to replace the Zach Hyman. David Camp on his own, I think, is a different um, uh, player altogether. He's a, a distinct defensive authority. Um, similar to Kasha, there's a defensive maturity to his game. There's a never let um, there's a relentless style that kind of accompanies that. Um, and all the players that we're also talking about, they do have a very good work ethic. Um, so I think that in the end, what Toronto did was to try to supplement the player that they lost in Zach Hyman and just continuously try to figure out what defense is in today's modern game and bring in players that would exemplify that type of style of game to make them tougher to play against, make better decisions, keep the puck more rather than throwing it away in bad situations, be defensively struck actually responsible so that you don't give your opp- uh, your opponents the opportunity to uh, score goals at bad moments that change momentum in the game. So that's kind of what I think that they did uh, by bringing in all those players. Chatting with Gus Casaros here from McKean's Hockey. And, you know, Gus, I, I want to ask you about Mitch Marner. And we, we've been talking about some of the guys on the, not fringes necessarily, but some of the newer faces, let's say. And Mitch Marner, obviously not a new face. I think fans, everyone knows uh, Mitch Marner's game at this point. I just wonder, after the way last season ended and he wasn't very popular, let's say, during the offseason specifically, I just, what, what do you think Mitch Marner has to do in order to get fans to agree that he played well? I just, I wonder what, what, what that answer is because I, you know, he had, I, I want to say he had almost, he either had almost or exactly 10 shots um, in last game, uh, the loss to the Senators. And I mean, we all know Mitch Marner is a very, very, very talented hockey player. I just, I wonder if he is unfortunately becoming like the, I don't know, for lack of a better term, like the whipping boy for when it, when it comes to the Leafs. Well, you know, the, the, the issue here is, and, and I was over the off season, I had to, a lot of time to kind of think about this too. I think when you have players and I, I, I think when you talk about Marner, you have to include him in the bigger conversation with Mar, uh, with Matthews Tavares and Nylander. Matthews can drive his own line. Tavares, maybe not to the same degree, but Nylander could. So, I think that as a pairing, Tavares and Nylander work so well that you have to kind of keep them together. That means what do you do with Marner if they're struggling? And in a perfect situation, you'd be able to split Matthews so that you're able to kind of split their um, offensive balance because now you have Matthews driving one line. You would hope to get Marner to be able to drive another line. And then now you have enough firepower that the other team is going to have to figure out, well, who are we covering? There's a predictability to Marner that I think kind of goes above and beyond skill set. We all know how skilled and powerful he is. So to to answer your question, what does he have to do to say that um, he's had a good game? Probably put up multiple points, be very visible, do really cool things, and 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 really wow the crowd. A, a like an effort where he might just get one assist, but is consistently creating offensive opportunities and supporting the fan. That kind of gets lost in the translation when you're looking at it game by game. To me, I don't really think that he needs to do anything during the regular season other than really just being Mitch Marner. Other than Toronto trying to balance their offense, if they're going to end up playing him with Matthews on the first line, and if they decide to do that, that's fine. Marner just needs to be Mitch Marner. In the playoffs, when the games count, and his the reliance on him being a star and an offensive producer, that's when I expect to see much better results. And I don't need multiple point games. And I don't think the fan base needs multiple point games. They need to see effectiveness. That effectiveness could just be putting the other team on their heels. And if there's, the scoring doesn't come, it will eventually come because this is a game of percentages. Eventually something will happen. Um, I think from the the disaster that kind of happened in the playoffs last year, it's left such a disastrous or, or, or a deleterious taste um, in fans' mouths that they've all of a sudden just 
turned on Marner and he needs to kind of win them back. I don't really think that that's really the case. I think halfway through the season, if he's, if he's producing enough point wise, he'll, he'll get enough of the noise to kind of settle down. But in during the playoffs, when it really does matter and in the end, I think it really does go back to that offensive balance. If he's not working out and Matthews and Marner is not working out in the playoffs and they need to do some kind of a split and that decision needs to be made, then that's when he'll kind of show what his true value is. And there are questions around that value. He is skilled. He's a very valuable player. But is he a player that's going to step up his game in the playoffs to the degree that you can say Mitch Marner is going to be a driving force in a playoff run? That's yet to be determined. That is the major question that I think that we need to ask for Mitch Marner. And we're not going to have that opportunity unless the Leafs make the playoffs. And when they do, I'm going to say when because I'm going to assume that they do. Um, That's going to be the biggest focus on Marner. Do you think you brought up a good point here, Gus, the idea that fans are are I don't want to say tired, but just the fans have have been a little exasperated with what we've seen from from Maple Leafs hockey in the last couple of seasons, to say the least, certainly. Right. And I just I I wonder, you know, does it really matter at this point? Barring not making the playoffs. And I do agree with you that they are probably even if it's going to be a tougher Atlantic division. I do. I do think they will make the playoffs. Um, where they finish in the Atlantic in terms of the top three, let's say, is a, is a different question. But either way, let's assume they make the playoffs. Does it really matter what they do in the regular season at this point? Like it almost feels it. It almost feels like it's not even make the playoffs or bust. It's win a game or pardon me, win a round and move on to the second round or bust at this point. Given all we have seen over the past, I don't know, like three or four seasons. I think what you're going to see is from a different degree of fans. So I, I don't know how old you are, dude, but I'm in my 50s. I've seen the Leafs kind of just at their absolute worst and then um, just come out with some superior play. And, and, and you kind of, it tugs at your heartstrings when you kind of see them doing something positive because it brings out that, that, that elation, that anticipation of doing something well. I don't really think it's a matter of Toronto just winning one round. During the regular season, what they need to do is hone their game. So I think dedicated, like, really hardcore, crazy fans uh, will start to look at tactics a little bit more. They'll start to look at uh, the numbers and see kind of where they, they, they take shape. They'll really do an analysis of this team to see just how ready they are in a playoff run. And then winning that first round, there's a lot of things that could have happened last year. You know, a Galchenyuk pass across the blue line that goes the other way, changes the complexion of the series. There's tons of stuff that could have gone the other way for Toronto. And, and, and I don't want to harp on that. And I understand that fans could be absolutely frustrated over not being able to win a round. Um, but these are the hurdles that contenders have to deal with. I use Washington as an example. There were multiple failures in, in, in even worse fashions that we kind of see what happened uh, being down three hours or being up three, one and losing a series. And yet they still ended up winning a cup. There's a lot of hurdles. Tampa Bay got swept by Columbus and yet they ended up winning a cup. They, they were, they went to the conference finals. Like there was lots of things that kind of happened. Then they missed the playoffs. It just, every team has to go through their own, particular adversity Toronto's particular adversity is winning that first round I think overall in the fans eyes but is that really the end goal I don't think that it is the end goal is to be a consistent Stanley Cup contender to do that you need to establish yourself during the regular season you need to be able to compete against 
any team that they end up playing with. And I mean, over the last 20 or so games, I think that they're pretty sick of playing Ottawa's in Montreal. And they're not going to see a new opponent until, um, until Monday against they play the New York Rangers. And then they don't see either of Ottawa and Montreal until January the 1st. So Toronto has to establish itself as a contender. They need to put themselves into the conversation that say, we can beat any team on any given night. And these are the reasons why. And then when they get into the playoffs, those reasons why should be the reasons why they should at least win one round. But there are greater goals that I think that they need to achieve than just winning one round, um, even though that might appease some of the fans. Um, And I think that we're going to end up seeing a lot of how that kind of comes to fruition through how they end up playing through this regular season. And uh, the regular season, yeah, the regular season continues tonight, Gus, uh, with against the Ottawa Senators, like you said. Uh, the last time they'll see the Sens until the new year, basically. So uh, we'll have to hope it counts for for a little bit here, and hope they uh, manage to avoid any more injuries like to those of Justin Hall and Peter Mrazek. But Gus Casaros, I'm chatting with him uh, from McKean's Hockey. Gus, always appreciate you being so generous with your time for me. Um, hopefully, we can do this again soon, and hopefully, we are chatting still about some uh, positive things here in Leafsland. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's always a pleasure. It's mine. There he goes. Gus Katsaros, hockey analyst for McKean's Hockey. And yeah, the the Toronto Maple Leafs are, I guess, conundrum. I'm going to say conundrum. That's where I fall on the Toronto Maple Leafs. I I grew up a Leafs fan. I am am not, let's say, of uh, the same vintage as Gus. He asked me how old I I am. I'm in my 30s. Uh, So I'm not not quite the same. But at the same time, um, I feel like every Leafs fan, no matter how old you are, has experienced, essentially at this point, you've experienced some kind of heartbreak when it comes to Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, at, no matter how old or young you are. And, um, you know, it's, it certainly feels like sometimes that that's just life, right? Life, life goes on, the Leafs suck, and then you die, right? That's, that's the, way the, the way it goes sometimes. But I, I do genuinely think, even though this year's squad may not be the most exciting squad when you look at the names on the starting lineup right now, right? Certainly no Austin Matthews. You have a first line that right now looks like it's going to be John Tavares, uh, who is centering Mitch Marner and Nick Ritchie. You have a second line that is uh, Alexander Kerfoot centering Nylander and Bunting. You got Camp centering Kasha and Engvall. You know, Spezza and Amadio and Simmons are on the fourth line. You know, you have injuries to guys like Justin Hall and Peter Mrazek, certainly early on as well, that the Leafs have to deal with the early season adversity. But at the same time, this may not be the sexiest Leaf squad. It may very well be one of the better Leaf squads, at the very least in John Tavares' time here. If you want to measure it that way, in the time that John Tavares has been a Toronto Maple Leaf, I dare say this may be the best team. Again, is it the most exciting team? I don't think so by in any sense of the word. But it is, a, it is a very good team. And I just think if they can weather the injury storm, and that's a big if. That's a big if, for sure. If they can weather that injury storm, they will, I think, be making some noise. Now, I was having this conversation with, uh, with I guess it was George, George Rustic, certainly, a couple of days ago on Sportsnet Tonight during the week. And um, I think it was, uh, I think it actually was on the, the night of the season opener, which was on Sportsnet TV. And we were talking about the idea that a lot of these win projections, you know, we do win projections when it comes to the Blue Jays. Then it's like, oh, well, how many games will they win in a given season? Will the Dodgers win over 100 games? Spoiler alert, they did. Will the Blue Jays win over 90 games? Spoiler alert, they did. Well, how many points will the Toronto Maple Leafs get this season? And 
I've seen a lot of projections that have put them over 100 points on the season. And what's more is I've seen a lot of projections that put both them and the Tampa Bay Lightning over 100 points and a couple other teams in the Eastern Conference over 100 points. Now, I just I don't think that's going to happen, first of all. I, I feel like when we get closer to the end of the season, things shut down a little more. And uh, we will not see that level of offense quite to that same degree. Um, so I, I'm I'm saying I'm guessing maybe a little less than 100 points, maybe in the 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 90 point plateau thereabouts, right? If they're playing very well, maybe slightly above. But I just when it comes to Toronto Maple Leafs, I just I have learned I think over the past couple of years to. Um, how do we want to say this? Maybe manage expectations, right? And I think, again, early on with guy, with injuries to not necessarily key players, but injuries to depth, and you see the, the move for Alex Bishop today. And again, I think it's a really cool story that someone who played for the Varsity Blues um, earlier this year is going to be suiting up as a Toronto Maple Leaf. I think that's really cool on its own. But again, I think that does point to some cap, again, maybe not mismanagement, but maybe cap struggles because again, the idea that fans have to know all of the Byzantine uh, rules and regulations when it comes to cap and how the teams manipulated to their, to however they want. I mean, how many times did we have the Nikita Kucherov conversation going into the playoffs last year? The answer is a lot, right? So I think the cap basically doesn't exist and sometimes it does. And it's a, it's a really uh, mercurial conversation. It feels like when it comes to the cap space, but that, that is part of your Leafs fandom at this point is something that really fascinates me, but it's going to be a conversation we are going to continue having from now all the way to game 82 at the end of the regular season. But at the very least right now, game three goes later tonight across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Joe Bone and Jim Ralph will have the call. Jack Campbell will be in net for your Toronto Maple Leafs. That will go right here across the Sportsnet Radio Network and the Leafs Radio Network as well. And of course, in about 30 seconds, we will make way for Leafs Nation pregame with Brent Gunning and Gord Stellick. They'll take it all the way to seven. The boys will be down at Scotiabank Arena, getting you set for game three between the Leafs and the Sands. I want to thank all of our guests, Gord Stellick himself, Kyle Glazer from Baseball America, Heather Prusak, Brad Gagno, Amon Adon, and Gus Katsaros. Thank you so much for listening to me on this three-hour edition of Sportsnet Today. I have been Show Ali. Thank you for your text, your tweets. Enjoy the Leafs hockey. Leafs Nation pregame is next with Gunny and Gord on the Sportsnet Radio Network. He's making some pitches when he has to. And, uh, you know, like I said, oh, Lord.